everybody, we are here. We are ready to tackle new material and we are very excited because you know we don't get new Song of Ice and Fire material very much. Although some wouldn't call this a Song of Ice and Fire material, though it is set in the Song of Ice and Fire world, which is, hey, take what we can get. And uh, yeah, so we're ready to go. We've got a lot to say. And this is going to kind of serve as a sounding board and a discussion for getting all this new material digested, getting it understood, getting it, you know, approaching it from all different angles we can so that down the line we can make some very thorough scripted episodes on this. The phrase new history doesn't really make sense in a vacuum, but you guys know what I mean when I say it like cases like this. And whenever we get something remotely new in the Song of Ice and Fire, pseudo Song of Ice and Fire world, it's cause for celebration, analysis, of course, and fun chats with your friends. And hey, that's us. We're your friends. And you're our friends. <laughs> that's We're your Game of Thrones slash Song of Ice and Fire podcast slash YouTube buddies. We're your water cooler. And it's time to chat about this new stuff. Now... This is, of course, set 250 to 300 years before the Song of Ice and Fire novels proper. And George really likes to use the extended material to build on not just the world, not just the setting, but to give us little clues about where the narrative is heading. Some of them are pretty subtle and some of them are a little less subtle. But there's a lot to say about the main series as well as just this really interesting time period and so let's do that. And in order to do this, like I said, what good is it if we're going to discuss these things with our friends if we don't invite a few of our friends to come and help us flesh this all out? So with that in mind, we've got a couple of stalwarts in the community here joining us. We'll start off with the man whose namesake is the same as our most recent scripted episode. Say hi, Brendan B. Fish. Welcome back. It's been a minute. It has. It's been uh, three years, right, since the last time we were actually did a recording together. Wow, has it been that wow. long? That is when we did Battle of Ice. Yeah, yeah remember when That's... Winds of Winter was right around the corner, and we were just doing <laughs> that Battle of Ice episode to uh, kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, I'm I'm Jeff, better known as Brandon P. Fish. I'm uh, happy to be here, and uh, I'm excited to be hanging out with you guys. Uh, we'll we'll have some uh, talk about whether this was a good. Story or not, and that'll be coming up. But yeah, excited to be here and happy to be talking with you guys about <laughs> this wonderful world of Westeros that we are apparently attached to forever and ever. Apparently. Very, very, oh. very. And of course, we also have our man LML, a.k.a. Lucifer Means Lightbringer, his uh, host of the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast. Welcome back, David. Hi, uh... You can call me David or LML or whatever comes to your lips. Uh, I'm here for the Brendan Beefish intervention. Uh, we're all here to convince Brendan how important world building is. That's... And I wouldn't miss that for the world. <laughs> uh, just uh, kidding aside, uh, LuciferMeansLightbringer.com is where you can find all my stuff. I host the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast. If you've heard anything about a moon exploding and causing the long night, then that's Generally, my bag of claptrap, and you can uh, check out my YouTube channel, Lucifer Means Lightbringer. Pretty much all you have to do is search Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and you'll find all my stuff. So thanks for having me on, guys. It's good to be on with Beefish uh, live, finally. At last. It's been never, right? This is the first time we've ever it's actually been never. chatted. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, you guys have interacted on Twitter a bit. Uh, you know, LML is fairly new on Twitter, but you've... Uh, 
broken you know, the ground running there. <laughs> well, I I think we're we're at least I I'm a fan of Beefish's work, and he acts like a fan of my my work sometimes. So uh, I think uh, we we read each other's stuff, and you know, oh, I've I've listened to your podcast. Like, so I, I have an hour long commute to work, and then two hours round trip. So I listen to so your episodes are great because I'll sit there and listen to like a four hour episode on something that I have no freaking idea was in a song of ice and fire when I when I first started and then I, I come into it. And the same goes for History of Astros is, too, which is my actual introduction to a song of ice and fire podcasting. So it's a pleasure cool. to be here. There you yeah. go. Chat it all comes full circle. We got a super chat already from Steven Stark, who said, Haven't read it yet. Spoil me good. Welcome, LML and Brendan Beefish. Also, Ashea is the best. And also, also, heart you a Z, so you don't feel left out. Oh, well, thanks. That doesn't I, feel I, so special not, to say it's just so he doesn't out. feel left out. <laughs> but we are glad to have Ashea here as well, not just running production, but in front of the camera. Of course, also a, mm-hmm. a big fan of the awesome Song of Ice and Fire backstory. So. And my apologies for Aziz maybe getting a scratchy voice yeah. sometimes. It's because I'm constantly trying to balance the gain versus Aziz having a much lar- much louder voice than I do, and most people do. <laughs> my loud laugh causes all sorts of technical problems. let me know if it's too quiet (laughs) or too loud. Okay, so um, I want to start real quick on a little bit. We got a couple of announcements, and then we'll get deep into the material here. Um, Start off on a sad note. Let's have a quick uh, moment of silence for Roy Dotrice, who was a hero pilot, as well as the voice of A Song of Ice and Fire. I know not everyone was a fan of him, but his his contributions to the community are undeniable, and I personally am a huge fan. So let's have a moment for Roy, the reader of all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, as well as the World of Ice and Fire, and an actor. He appeared on the show as the pyromancer, Helene. Okay. Um, also, uh, if you want... If can we, hold people- on, can we, can we all just together in unison say Brian together? <laughs> Patire. Can we say Patire? Patire and, and Brian, yes. <laughs> Patire and Brian. Or Damfair. Don't forget Damfair. Damfair, right? Yes. Mm. He actually got me with that one. <laughs> yeah, me too. I copied that for years until somebody's like, damp hair, god damn it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> duh. <laughs> yeah, talk about missing the obvious, yeah. You guys Feel haven't pretty, lived uh, until you've come through a uh, the gate of a major military installation with uh, Roy Dutrice doing the lysis scene with Peter after they get married. Going patire, 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 (laughs) and you can't find the mute button on your car radio. So I'm telling you guys, you guys have not lived until you've done that. Yeah, that's not the best part of the audiobook, but it might be the funniest part. (laughs) (laughs) So I see here that some people haven't actually read Sons of the Dragon yet. That's fine. Some people have listened to it. It's not fine. It's it's not fine. (laughs) But since it's not a story per se with a, you know, a narrative in that sense, it's fine to learn it this way. You know, we're going to be talking about it. We're going to cover a lot of it. If you haven't read it, well, go. maybe we'll inspire you to read it. And of course, you can get a copy of it through our website. We've got links there. You can get it through Amazon. You can get it through Audible. Lots of different uh, ways to digest it. And of course, a lot of it's going to appear later. You know, a lot of this is sort of overlapping material we already have. The World of Ice and Fire We've seen a lot of this there. Some of this stuff is in the novels, the main novels. We get some of the detail from it. But together, you know, it forms kind of a... We're kind of triangulating things because we get a lot of different sources on this, a lot of different takes on it all. So it's really kind of interesting how this all coalesces. 
And I want to also point out that um, along the lines of announcements here, our, I hope you guys enjoyed our Blackfish episode, which, which came out, you know, you know uh, about 10 days ago or so. And what some of you may have noticed, if you have listened to it, is that we employed a co-writer. And for that, with that in mind, I want to explain what we've been doing. And that is we've been reinvesting the money that we're making for Patreon and, and ads and donations and all that to grow the show as much as we can. So these extra episodes that we've been doing, like these live streams and the gaming streams that we've started doing, none of that is taking away from us our core mission of writing scripted episodes. That's still our our anchor. That's still the thing that we focus the most on. But with having multiple episodes in progress with multiple co-writers, we're getting used to working with them. That's going to pay some serious dividends in the long run. It's not going to happen right away because we're getting used to working with these writers and it's it's you know you can't just hit the ground running with people you're not used to working with but we all do get along really well we've, we've carefully selected who we're working with and so that's going really well so especially starting with neck beginning of next year we should really start to see a lot of that pay off with an uptick in releases from us while we continue to do these fun in between hangout sessions so that's that um, and if you, like I said, if you haven't gotten the book, check it out, but we're going to break it down pretty good for you here. Got to thank, of course, Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword, who is a forced in battle and bravest of our patrons, as well as our dragon riders. That is Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, rider of Mazlacartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Talanes the Talon, King of Gagasos, is rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and Talons of Midnight Black, and Jinx of House Lier is Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a Woods Witch, writer of Erogenia, a Sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. So people like that and our other patrons who are very uh, helpful but shall go nameless for now are helping us with this expansion of our show, and it means a lot to us. So thank you very much for helping out. And let's see here. I think that is about it. Actually, one more group of thanks. I want to thank uh, Nina Friel for helping me uh, bounce some ideas off of uh, while we were, we were talking about this uh, book when it came out, as well as the people at Westeros.org, uh, Elio Garcia, and all the people who participated in the Sons of the Dragon thread, which I perused quite a bit as I was writing this document and with, with these guys here and with Ashea. So a lot going on there and a lot of different people contributed to this. So always got to thank the people who make this possible. All right. Well, let's get into it. That's enough for the announcements. And let's see. Man, uh, let's I thought just that get... never end. <laughs> <laughs> let's go with the first takes here. David, we'll start with you. LML, what did you think? Just first take. What did you think of this short story? 42 pages long. Magor, Anis, Aegon, Visenya, and all these other cool characters. Well, what are your first thoughts? I, I'm a big fan of backstory. I think backstory is great once you sort of set aside the fact that it isn't, you know, one of the main books, which I'm sure all of us will be able to do today. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll get it together. <laughs> no, I, I, liked, I liked it a lot. I thought there was a lot of strong female characters in this story. Um, it's, it's like it was called Sons of the Dragon, but the most compelling characters were the female characters. Um, I totally you know, agree with that. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of takes we'll have. I mean, there was, you know, uh, Vagar flew in front of the moon and made an eclipse. And uh, so <laughs> we, I knew you'd have something to say about stuff. that. <laughs> yeah, no, there's all kinds of great stuff. I enjoyed it um, about the same as I did the other two. Um, I guess I guess it was it was probably not, 
it didn't have quite as much narrative cohesion as the uh, the Princess and the Queen and uh, the Rogue Prince. However, there was a lot. I think I got more out of it, like on the second and third listen. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So, I mean, mm. Magor is a pretty horrible person. So, yeah. reading about him is a little bit like reading the Sansa chapters in King's Landing, where it's like a lot of Joffrey, and you're like, man, I really hate that bastard. But it's yeah, you know, it's part of the it's important part of the context. So, how about you, B Fish? Okay, so I'm probably going to be the lone voice here in that <laughs> I'm happy to have new material, but I wasn't super enthralled with the Sons of the Dragon. Um, to kind of like lead us into this <coughs> a little bit, my expectation when I came into reading this book was that this chapter would be similar to the Aegon's Conquest chapter from the World of Ice and Fire. And the reason why I thought that was that Elio Garcia had said before um, – the Sons of the Dragon came out that the only chapter that had reached the world of ice and fire in an uncondensed form was the Aegon's Conquest chapter. So I was like, great. I love that chapter. That was probably my favorite Targaryen chapter besides the Aerys the second chapter, which comes at the very end of the Targaryen line. But the reality was that there was some interesting stuff that I liked in that. And we'll talk about that. Uh, but I didn't really feel that the, the narrative struck a chord to me the same way the novels and, and the Duncan egg uh, novellas do. And, and, you know, that's to be expected, right? I, I, I knew that it was going to be history. I knew it wasn't going to be like this kind of the cool way that Martin writes from these different point of views. But I, I did find that I wasn't really gelling with a lot of the, the information that Martin put out. Um, and, I, and I kind of wondered whether, you know, was this something that I – that Martin was writing because for the sake of completeness? Or was this something that, you know, he was really grooving to? And I, and I kind of got the impression that Martin was more interested in things like the Dance of the Dragons – uh, Aegon's conquest and the, you know, the, um, the Regency period for Aegon the third, which are the things that he seemed to kind of just write, you know, tens of thousands of words on. And, you know, that, that's fine. It's, it's, it's not my, it's, it's okay that, that, you know, it, that I don't like it. It's also okay that other people like really got enjoyed it and grooved to it. But, you know, it wasn't my favorite thing to read from a song of ice and fire so far. I would probably rate it around, you know, the same level as the, uh, the rogue prince. All right. What about you, Ash? Uh, I think it goes without saying that someone would like it less than A Song of Ice and Fire and Duncan Egg next yeah. to actual narrative and character that we're really seeing. Uh, but I, as for it compared to The Princess and the Queen and The Rogue Prince, personally, I can't help but, you know, lump The Princess and the Queen and The Rogue Prince together. Yeah, the two kind halves of, of the same story. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. I think I like Sons of the Dragon more, to be honest, with hmm. just myself. I don't know. The perspectives in... Uh, the coverage of the Dance of the Dragons wasn't super engaging to me personally. Uh, there was a lot of POVs I'd rather have followed or actually followed POVs. I don't know. I like Sons of the Dragons, I, I guess. Well, as far as I go, um, I I don't know that I would rate it compared to the other two. Like, I think it's fairly on par with the other fake history stories like Princess and the Queen and the Rogue Prince. I would maybe rate it a little less because it's a little shorter. So if I think they're equal, then it comes down to quantity. That's basically why... I like Storm of Swords the most out of the main books is it's it's almost as long as Dance with Dragons and you know it's 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 similar to the other books cuz I can't decide which one I like best. So I just default to it being the longest so that's why it wins. Um even though Dance is technically a little bit longer. But so that's a big thing for me. And to Jeff's point, you know, I think it's really interesting. It's a, it's absolutely a fair point that, of course, no no one expects this to be as good as A Song of Ice and Fire. George doesn't put as much effort into it, and we don't get characterizations. We don't get inside people's heads, which is part of what makes Song of Ice and Fire great. But 
what we do get in both A Song of Ice and Fire and in all the fake histories is not only is it something fun and new for us all to geek out over, which that's just great by itself, but it's there's always a ton to read between the lines. There is a lot of dots connecting here, a lot that we can connect to things we already know. It's like triangulating data. We get a little bit from the world of Ice and Fire, a little bit from the Rogue Prince, and a little bit from Sons of the Dragon, things like that. And of course, plenty from the main series. There's lots of history in A Song of Ice and Fire woven into the narrative. So that's the thing. Bottom line is, even if we're saying this, you know, is just okay, uh, in re- you know, relative to other A Song of Ice and Fire stuff, it's still new A Song of Ice and Fire stuff. It's still like, you know, something I rush to read and reread and geek out over. So I love it. And I completely agree with a lot of the criticisms. And I think there's some, uh, some more criticisms to make. Let's talk just for a minute about the meta behind the creation of Sons of the Dragon. Since I'm giving Jeff such a hard time, I just really wanted to, <laughs> real quick, I wanted to actually kind of ag- agree with him. For the most part, I, like you said, I agree with a lot of the criticisms too. Like, it's kind of an it is what it is thing. Like, it's not new narrative. It's it's more history when we're all like super hungry for T-Wow. So, I mean, granted that. And Jeff has some more specific criticisms that are, you know, are pretty much on the money. So I, I don't want to yeah. act like he's out to lunch or nothing like that, you know. I, I, look, I, I, just, I, th- I look forward to the debate. I've been crazy. <laughs> I've been thinking about I, this for weeks. I think Aziz and I just prefer, we 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 geek out on world building and, uh, you know, it's maybe reading through it just for an enjoyability type of standpoint, it's not sensational. But in terms of like hashing out the details and thinking about foreshadowing, there's lots to be had there. So... Yeah. It's fun to read it that I way. I think maybe it's less fun to read, but just just as fun to analyze as A Song of Ice and Fire. I think know. I agree with someone in the chat here, Sammy at Sand, who says, I'm over the tar. Do we get information about other families' characters? Please. And what we, we do in here, but I, I agree with them completely, and I didn't even pinpoint that as one of the things that you can feel burnt out, pun intended, <laughs> on all these Targaryen histories as much as, you know, I, I like the Targaryens, but the Starks, the Martells, the Lannisters, they all have interesting stories. It's very so. true. And of course, we get tidbits of these other families in this story. They obviously they participate. There's a lot of stuff on, say, House Velaryon, and you know, there's a lot of there's quite a bit on House Baratheon, exactly. High towers, high towers, yeah. Oh yeah, high towers are hugely prominent, and and that's that's all very interesting. So we get we get definitely certainly get lots of extra stuff from these other ones, even while it focuses on the Targaryens. Now, here's where something else is kind of interesting. The construction of this book, there was apparently a pretty significant error made here. It it didn't have a huge effect on the book, but it's very significant. And this is what happened. This was edited ahead of time, right? Elio and Linda edited some of this material for the world book, and it didn't go into the world book. It, it It was set aside. When this was sent to Gardner Dozois, who is the editor of this anthology, George accidentally sent the old unedited copy, not the Elio and Linda edited copy. So what happened was that created some branching of information. For example, some of you may have noticed the name Rogar Baratheon. Now, originally in in the world of Ice and Fire, that name comes up as Robar Baratheon. Now, what happened there was... Elio and Linda, reading George's work, saw that George had written it both ways. And he neglected to respond. It was such a small thing. They asked, hey, George, is it Rogar or Robar? And he never responded. So they just had to guess. And they went with Rogar. Robar. Gardner Dozois was faced with the same decision. Is it Rogar or Robar? And he went with Rogar. So that's why there's a Rogar and a Robar. <laughs> and they're the same person. 
That also happened with Rala Targaryen um, instead of Rayella Targaryen. Um, so there's a few small inconsistencies like that. And by, and the, the silver lining, his, earlier in, in the chat, I think it was Melanie Patrick said that Aziz is looking at the bright side. Now I'm going to take that a step <laughs> farther. I'm going to really look at the bright side here. Given how, given that George was maybe a little loose with this stuff, and given how there's a few flaws in it, there's some things that contradict themselves, this kind of proves that George didn't put a ton of effort into it, which is like, well, he wasn't exactly distracted from T-Wow that much if it's, you know, if it's got holes like this, right? Right. And, and it's like, it's, we know from what George has said about his writing of The World of Ice and Fire and from the material that was kind of extracted from The World of Ice and Fire that'll become Fireblood Volume 1, that it was all done by early 2014. So he submits his, his final chapter, which is the Ironborn chapter, as it turns out, in early 2014. And then this becomes... Um, the world of ice and fire, he ends up taking all, a lot of the material that was originally sidebars. So the, the interesting thing about this Aenys and, and Megor thing is that this wasn't originally supposed to be this, you know, 30 or 40,000 word chapter. It was supposed to be a sidebar that was supposed to augment the text that Elio and Linda were writing for the world of ice and fire, but it becomes this major massive thing, which, you know, as, and George is famous for this, whereas, you know, the story, you know, grew or the telling of the story grew. And so, you know, you have, you know, a trilogy becomes four books and six books and seven books and, you know, however many long, however many books it is by the end of it. And the same, same sort of dynamic works here with The World of Ice and Fire, where he was only supposed to write, you know, a few sidebars to help bring some information forward. It ends up being um, 200 or 300,000 words by the end of it is what he wrote for The World <laughs> of Ice and Fire. He just went off. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's let's so let's say who we touched on this briefly, but didn't get very far into it till we got distracted because there's always so much to say. So who uh, who who stood out to you? Who is your favorite characters here? We'll start with you, Ash. Who was your favorite character in Sons of the Dragon? Who stood out? Uh, I think uh, my favorite character straight up would be Raina Targaryen. I would just like to see something from her perspective. She went to a lot of different places and did some awesome things while enduring, you know, some terrible things. And it sounds like she was, you know, she had her stuff together. She she got away from some people on her own. So I thought that was awesome. I think David uh, LML was going to talk a little bit more about her. So my other answer is going to be Poxy Jane Poor which is the female leader of the poor fellows, and she's eventually betrayed by them and burned as a witch. So that's a dark story, but I like hearing about, you know, female outlaws, even religious ones. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, um, Brendan? <laughs> I, uh, my, my favorite character, and it's, it's really only the name, to be honest. It's, uh, it's Dick Bean, who I Dick thought Bean. was a great name. <laughs> it was just a fabulous name that George came up for this super minor character that appears in one scene that we'll talk about and in more length. Um, but yeah, Dick Bean for sure. Now that's, that's a joke when he says, I've been yeah. a King's man, right? That's I've the been joke, right? I've been. Man. And the follow-up line is this bean shames us all, <laughs> which is just also gr glorious. <laughs> uh, what was especially glorious is that you could tell the uh, vo vocal actor for the audiobook 
was like hungry for dialogue, but it's like 95% narrative. So the few <laughs> lines of dialogue, he like fires it up with like 100% gusto. It's I, great. I, noticed, <laughs> I noticed that too. He does that for um, for a bunch of a couple of characters that he seems to really kind of uh, really kind of find himself congruent with. Magor occasionally, like he kind of gets this really kind of evil voice going on, but Dick Bean, he like really kind of throws it all in there. That's a good segue to bring up, and I see someone asking, "Who does the the audio book?" It's, it's I know it's a new person that hasn't done any any a Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones stuff before, but I've already forgotten his name. But you guys have listened to it, so do you do you remember his name? And I don't remember the no. name, but I thought he was pretty good. He was. We talked about it on on Twitter, and I forgot already. He was okay. I, I, I he was good. I think uh, what threw me off is that he kept pronouncing Magor as Megor. Like throughout yeah. the entire like like, like, like he's meager. That does not a good connotation for someone as strong as Megor. Yeah, he's meager. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> but so I I wore my I wore my Megatron for president shirt. <laughs> Megor Megatron Megor yeah Megatron the cruel. So LML, what about you? Who was your favorite? Well, yeah, I it, definitely Reyna as. Uh, we're allowed to both pick Raina. It's fine. Yeah, that's Absolutely. what I said. I, I gave you she a lead awesome. into it, and then Aziz yeah. went right past my lead in and went to Jeff. Yeah, no, <laughs> so that's that, cool. That was great. Aziz, Aziz is still learning. You know, I mean, he's, he's getting it together. We're all patient with him. Whoops. <laughs> uh, no, but he was. I, I think uh, Raina was a great character. Like she's, she goes through a lot. Um, she's, she, you know, she her husband is killed at the God's Eye. Quicksilver's just mauled by Balerion, and she goes through that loss, and then regroups, and then is forced to marry Magor, the killer of her husband, and then later. What I love is that, like, I guess we'll talk about this, but, the, you know, her stealing Blackfire on the way out. Like, that yeah. was just awesome. That was really yeah. awesome, yeah. She does. So, we'll mention her a few times, but she's a great character. And there's a few other female characters that really come through, like I was saying, but Reyna was kind of my favorite, I guess. My favorite was is Visenya. She's always been fascinating, and we learn even more about her. She's just really powerful, and she had so much to do with the ruling uh, of a post-conquest and she participated in the conquest. So she's, you know, behind Magor as one of the conquerors when Aenys and Magor weren't alive during the conquest. And she's older than, than Aegon or uh, Rhaenys and outlived them both by quite a bit. So she had been ruling for a long time. Uh, she's super powerful, super clever, uh, pretty brutal. You know, you got to figure that a lot of what Magor did, she kind of encouraged or at least couldn't stop him from doing and from her own actions, you figure that it was more of the former than the latter because she seemed to tend towards brutality. And she was riding her dragon, attacking castles at like age 70 or 71. So really, really quite interesting. I really uh, had a lot to say about her. So anyway. The narrator was Arthur Moray. Oh, okay. Arthur Moray. Gotcha. Thanks, Meredith, in the chat. <laughs> That's not the name I remember, but anyway. <laughs> well, there was some confusion, right? Because there was a couple, there was two names that were kind of bandied about, but I, I don't. Because you were having this conversation with, um, yeah, I asked Elio ahead of time, yeah. and and they apparently gave the wrong answer because someone else had found the like the word the random house listing. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, another interesting little tidbit here that is, is we're going to explore more later when we do a scripted presentation on some of this stuff is that originally George had written Aegon the Conqueror to have daughters, and not only did he remove those daughters, but it by doing that it created a rumor that he himself put in the books that maybe Aegon himself couldn't have kids. Maybe Rhaenys, you know, got pregnant elsewhere and Visenya got pregnant through sorcery. Because if you think about it, Aegon 
he starts the conquest when he's in his late 20s. And he's been married to both of his sisters this whole time. And he doesn't have a kid until seven years after the conquest. It's all, it's a little strange, a little strange. So that's uh, an interesting story, but we, we can't go too deep into that. It's, it's not something we really have a lot of d- data on, but it's a cool parallel to Robert, right? Magor and Joffrey have a lot in common. And Robert was king and his descendants weren't really his descendants. That may be what happened with Aegon the Conqueror. And that would be kind of ironic if the sons of the dragon aren't really his sons. They'd still be sons of Rhaenys and Visenya. But yeah. No, anyway. I, I think I think it's pretty hilariously ironic if it turns out to be the case. And and just to you sort of skipped ahead, but just to sum up for people who may not be have heard of that idea before, there's in the world of ice and fire, we're given pretty cl- clear clues and rumors that potentially uh, Aenys was not the child of, of Aegon, but, you know, Rhaenys was potentially sleeping around with singers and septons and whatnot. And then the, <clears throat> on the Visenya side of things, she couldn't get pregnant for a very long time. And then when she finally did, it was Magor. So the rumor yeah. is that she used sorcery and that she wouldn't have been able to give birth otherwise. Who would the father be, though? Yeah, who knows? It might still have been Aegon that she just used magic before, and she just knew there right. was a risk, like it's blood magic or something. And we all know that blood magic has a cost, and it's you can't predict exactly what's going to happen. Maybe it's like prophecy where she was getting a little desperate, or she decided, you know, this was my last chance or something like that. She thought maybe she would do the natural way, but as she started to approach 40 years old, she's like, well, I better do something, or I'm never going to have a kid with, with Aegon. And... The, the way his kids, Magor's, turned out with multiple more instances of children that are vaguely like Rago. You know, they came out with lizard parts and with multiple uh, sex organs. That really just furthers the idea that the Targaryens are actual blood of the dragon. That is not, you know, some kind of just literary device. They literally have dragon blood. Yeah, this was one of my favorite things, uh tidbits from the book like just another brick in the wall of evidence like you said that the targaryens are more than just sort of poetically the blood of the dragon like there is some sort of horrible blood magic thing in the past of the valerians which allows them to bond with dragons and it's hard to say exactly what it is without spinning like complete tinfoil but we're given that clue on gagasos about the valerians practicing human animal hybrid creation with blood magic and whatnot so it does seem to be something that's possible and specifically yes. tied to Valeria. Uh, that's why I mentioned the, the double sex organs. One of Magor's children had both sex organs, which is dragons have changeable mm-hmm. sex, right? So that fits. And, of course, one of them had wings. And to tie to the main series, this is where we get maybe a little Song of Ice and Fire direct hint. This is the first time we hear that one of Magor's kids, this wasn't repeated in the world of Ice and Fire. It wasn't repeated elsewhere. One of them had an abnormally large head, which is something that is said about Tyrion, who is, of course up in the air what his exact parentage is. Um, you know, I, I still think it's more likely Tywin than, than Joanna. We weighed in on that a million <laughs> times. But if it turns out to be Ares's son, this is more evidence of that. This will be this we'll look back on this and be like, ah, that big head thing, you know? <laughs> Very cool. So what I want to dive start with is the setting. The setting is really interesting. That's one of the things about this time period that makes it particularly fascinating to me and hopefully a lot of you all as well. And it's because Westeros was really, I wouldn't say stagnant for thousands of years, but you had all the different kingdoms before they were united and they would 
be here and there and they'd be fighting each other and maybe you get the Ironborn taking over the Riverlands or the Stormlands conquering this or that and back and forth. The kingdoms and the borders change. Kings and queens rise and fall. But nothing like the whole continent being conquered by a dragon lord. That is completely new. It starts off this whole new era and we've only been in that era for 300 years, right? That's kind of a, if you take a step back and think about Westeros, this is a relatively short period of time that that we're that we're looking at where our story is set, right? It's so much it was so much different then. Just just a quick list of things that were really really different back in that time. Just Westeros being unaccustomed to having a king. Uh, most of the people hadn't even seen a dragon yet, even though, you know, everyone had heard of them. There wasn't a king's road. That's huge, right? There wasn't there was less trade and commerce between the regions, less connectivity. There was no small council. There was Grand Maester, the office of Grand Maester, and Kingsguard were new. Tiana of the Tower, Tiana of Pentos, Queen Tiana eventually, is probably the first ever Master of Whispers, and she's referred to as Mistress of Whispers. So just all these things are new. And when we read A Song of Ice and Fire set in 300 years later, all these things are established. So it's really, it's a, it's a really cool thing to think about how different it was. And that's one of the things that make this, you know, to me, makes it super fascinating. Were there any other observations about the setting that that any of you guys think are worth mentioning? We've just we've just received an update. The narrator is not the person that we said before. It is in fact Ralph Lester. That name is familiar. Uh, okay, yeah. sorry about that confusion, <laughs> right. yep. folks. Ralph Lester. That's right. Okay, that's familiar. <laughs> Meredith, Meredith led us astray and then led us back again to the path that, of righteousness. All right, thank you, Meredith. <laughs> and speaking of our chatters, it looks like we have about around two hundred people or so participating live tonight. Thank you very much for showing up, everybody. Feel free to ask questions. We'll try to answer them as quickly as we can. As hope, assuming we see them, and of course, you can always uh, jump to the front of the line with a super chat. Um, which is a live donation that you can attach a question or comment to. So as for what you were saying, Aziz, yeah. uh, I did a Crusader Kings 2 game from the Sons of the Dragon perspective uh, during Aegon the Conqueror's rule because I wanted to see what he could do. And yeah, you can form these road systems and you can build up the Red Keep and do all of these these things that are so important later on in our in the world. So nice. That was reiterated. Did Magor have any kids? I never had Re- Magor. Oh. Visenya had a daughter instead. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That would have been nice That's for a lot of people. It would have been yeah, nice. It was it was uh, <laughs> interesting for sure. It was different. That uh, so so you mean Magor with teats? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that is what it was. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) So, Jeff, what about you? What were some things that you took note of about the setting, things that jumped out to you? The North and the Iron Islands Mm. weren't really present in the narrative. That's true. The Iron Islands do feature a little bit with the the dude who comes thinking that he's the, uh, the drowned god reborn. Uh, for a little Wild bit, us. yes, that was that was kind of a cool little uh, uh, Cthulhu, Cthulhu like uh, like name. Yeah, and the and the maesters made fun of him in in Game of Thrones season seven, if you recall. No, they, they I, I didn't recall him. that. That's good. When Sam storms off from the meeting of the archmaesters who aren't doing anything, they're like they mentioned Jenny of Oldstones and Lados. <laughs> they're laughing at these references. Yeah, Lados <laughs> was cool. I I I. I, I I, I was I kind of enjoyed that a little bit on the on the reread, um, but the North is pretty much not there. I think there's one reference to the North looking on at you know the chaotic events going on south of the Neck with with interest, 
Um, you kind of wonder what the North is go is is doing during that time. You know, are they hoping that the Targaryens follow this so they can resume their independence, or are they kind of waiting around and seeing how things shake out? So I was I was curious that there was a curious omission, and that kind of gets back to something that, that Shay was saying is that you know there's. I would love to get like a history of the North and the, and the Starks the same way we have all these freaking Targaryens that have, you know, page after page of narrative dedicated to I it. agree. I will, I will say that whenever we get these She-Wolves of Winterfell story, there should be some good history there. That's going to be there awesome. Be some- While also being narrative and, and you know, character-based. So that's great. Yeah. Except for that George is doing more anthologies until uh- – <laughs> so probably not. There's probably no more Duncan Egg work that we'll see until after A Dream of Spring comes out. Mm, I was just going to observe that George George seems to have a fascination with writing about things that he hates. Like <laughs> he despises the Targaryens for the most part, <laughs> and yet he continues to write about them. Like there's and a lot of his characters show you that. Like he's fascinated with the darker side of humanity, and there's something something interesting that he does uh, exploring people. That I mean, he's anti-war. And yet he writes all these viciously cruel characters, uh, you know, who use war and then even humanizes them and stuff. It's it's really strange. Like he's he's obviously fascinated with writing about these kind of sick people. I mean, the Targ- the Valerians and Targaryens are essentially like as racist as they come. I mean, they're ag- technical genetic racists. Oh, yeah. That's why he put the name Aryan in Valerian. Like he drew that. <laughs> correlation intentionally I, and blonde I have to you know think. you know you have the straight blonde hair sort of thing the kind of that blonde white hair yeah thing. dude yeah. i mean it's right there <laughs> i mean it's in all of them it's yeah. in targaryen valerian valerian That's a good point i don't know and there's another obvious one i missed apparently <laughs> Aryan Bl- bright flame oh there you go Aryan Bl- bright flame. That's good. That's good. there's another one right there so yeah. uh, getting back to the setting which is going to be a jumping off point to starting with anis here we have as our uh, commenter here, the Dragon Demands, who is also uh, runs, uh, is, has a big part of, to do with the wiki, and which of the course he, he point the got wiki. He points out there's uh, none of this will be added to the wiki for another month or so. That's kind of their standard policy to avoid spoilers. He also points out the first night was still legal, and there was no unified currency. Those are also good points. Mm-hmm. Now, but one of the most important things that wasn't established was the lack of succession laws. Aegon oh, yeah. apparently didn't do a great job nailing this down because there was all sorts of different ideas bandied about throughout this period of who should inherit. And it, the questions they imply were not that he obvious. did set it down. They imply that he did have a, a, a thought on that and that he settled it and that they just didn't go just with didn't it. Didn't stick to it, yeah, for whatever reason. For like, power, he did power seem to think or, about it, though, at least. And it was sort of like default and all inheritance, which is, of course, you know, the sons, the first son, his his male children, followed by his female children. But that's not how succession works now. So we know there was a change because in standard inheritance laws, you get a daughter comes before an uncle, as is comes up in the Karstark situation and, and many others. But that's not the case when it comes to the throne now. But at some point, there was confusion over these things. So that's why Reyna, for a while, was the heir. But, you know, a lot of people supported Magor because he was a warrior, because he was a man, and all these other things. And, well, you get the picture. Mm-hmm. So that's, of course, a huge point in leading off why there was so much turmoil. So let's start with them as children. Can we it- get to a super chat first? Oh, we have a super chat. Yes, yeah. absolutely. 
uh, from Acre Frey, who says <laughs> that he's not sure if he's if he's had beefish. State mm-hmm. the tongue twister that so many seem to do surprisingly well on. That's a tongue twister. Right. Beef, beefish, you have to, you have say, to say. Irish wristwatch. Three times. Three times, but is it three times fast or is it just three as, times? As no. fast as you can. As fast as three you Three times can. fast if you have balls. Yeah. <laughs> Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. <laughs> well, I think you got one out of That's three. A good one. That's a good one. <laughs> one out of three. Irish wristwatch. The famous, the famous hand washing ritual of all Irish people that happens before dinner. I, that's what I do. You know, my mother's Irish, so. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Acre Frey, for that. All right. <laughs> well done, sir. Yes. So in seven years after the conquest, AC7, we have. The birth of Anis from Rainis, which, yeah, you can see where that, the RH, <laughs> it was taken away to make a son. I I tell you, and I'm a little embarrassed, I ne- I love names and I love looking at how they got their names. I never realized that. <laughs> like, I never once considered that Anis was just named after Rainis. This is really obvious This now. episode is turning into yeah. admitting things we should have noticed our... We, I really <laughs> feel like I should have known that. Damn. <laughs> Seven in AC seven, Anis is born, and immediately it's it's a pretty big deal because as we see, Aegon doesn't have kids at this point, which is odd, you know. And of course, he's setting up this big new kingdom without a successor. That's that's gonna make some people nervous because we all know how bad civil wars can get. And we did end up with civil wars, although it didn't quite go the way it may have seemed like it was gonna go. One thing really interesting about Anis is that he spent nearly all of his youth traveling around with his father and being cheered at. And this is going to come up again later as a big thing because he's going to be really confused when revolts start happening everywhere. And he's like, why are all these revolts happening? I don't get it. I thought everyone loved me. (laughs) And so, and meanwhile, five years later, Magor is born and Magor stays home with his prideful chip on her shoulder mother while Anis is out there getting the acclaim and all the love. And that is a good start to why the two go in different directions. Now, they just are apparently born with pretty distinct different personalities on top of this, but circumstances and the scenario really made that difference even larger. So that's where I want to start our conversation. I want to point out when you bring up him traveling to all those different places, there's so many little things that I would love to see stories of. Like he went to Sunspear, Aegon and Aenys. They went to Winterfell. They went all these different places and he went there for that feast of friendship with Daria Martell. Obviously, I want to see that in particular, especially because they must have had some really bitter conversations with each other because of Rhaenys' death. Yeah. And and that, of course, is huge too. Aenys didn't grow up with his mother. Yeah. She died when she was only about three years old, and the war with Dorne was ongoing when he was born. So even though he she died when he was three, she probably, you know, wasn't even there for those first three years very much. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, Beefish, let's get your take. What do you think about this early, these early days, you know, how they were kind of divided and how this affects their upbringing later? Do you think this was pretty big or... Or is there something else to, to say here? For sure, I mean, it's huge. The the different and, and I, I don't I, and I don't know what the the motif that Martin is going for, but I read it as kind of like there's kind of a almost genetic inheritance. So you have you know Annie's getting Rainey's 
like uh, a love for music and for mummery and those sorts of things. And then you get Magor getting Visenya's warlike manner and kind of violence and inability to really communicate with people that all that well. So I, I, I enjoyed some of that. And, and, you know, being me, I kind of brought it back to the main series and I was thinking, you know, are there parallels here? And I thought that Magor kind of has some kind of Stannis-like traits, at least before he goes north of the wall in, in A Storm of Swords. And, um, you know, Aenys kind of has these kind of Renly Baratheon sort of traits as well, where he's like, he's really well-liked, he's into fashion, um, he's into like mummer shows, and, you know, the, those types of kind of soft power type ways that, that Renly operates under. Um, so I, it was interesting to see the way that both of these characters grew up and their, the different circumstances that they had. And, and you know, of interest too is that Aenys, you know, he was, he was three years old when Rhaenys dies in Dorne. And then you have, you know, Magor living almost his entire adult life under Visenya's supervision until he was well into his adulthood, right? So I, I found it really interesting that the lack of, uh, you know, maternal support for Aenys produced Aenys kind of the way that he was. And he was kind of seeking after, you know, popular support and seeking after kind of the love of the populace. And, and Magor was very much, you know kind of confident in who, who he was, despite how awful that he was. And and I think a lot of it was based on the fact that, you know, he had his mom there, you know, for his entire life, pretty much up to a few years before his death. Yeah, he was, he was, it's almost like, you know, I don't want to go too far with this term, but in a sense, Anis was a bit of um, a daddy's boy, but also with that populace loving him and cheering him thing while Magor was more of a mother's boy. But of course, this is not a typical father or a typical mother, but... Use the correct terminology, please. Mama's boy. Mama's, Mama's boy. boy. A Mama mother's boy. boy. Yeah, that's so... I'm, I'm trying... So appropriate. Mother's boy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, the... The uh, the difference there and their upbringing and the difference between their the, the parenting, I think, is really huge. And... It comes up so much later because a theme with Magor throughout his life is pride. He's extremely proud and he does not handle uh, being insulted or even being talked back to. <laughs> I mean, forget insults. Just people disagreeing with him can get you killed. It's it's really – he does not deal with defiance well at all. I mean, it's not even defiance a lot of these things. He's just Everything seems to be defiance to him. Um, meanwhile, Aenys is really the opposite. He just, people could just talk crap right to his face and he would hardly do anything about it. Um, he would just kind of like, oh, okay, I understand your problem here. But he doesn't really understand the problem. It's like, why are they rebelling? I don't understand. <laughs> I would listen to them if they came to me. So, uh, LML, what's your take on this stuff here? Okay, so I think that, um, the the absentee father thing is the first parallel to Joffrey. Like yep. it's a really important one. And <clears throat> like if you were to sum up what was the defining thing for each of Aenys and Megor growing up. So for Aenys, he was basically a typical spoiled prince. He was brought up to believe he was the heir, that the people loved him. He was riding on his dad's coattails. He mostly saw his dad ruling and not the struggle that his dad went through to conquer conquer Westeros. And so he's basically your stereotypical rich kid. And he, he ends up being indecisive and fairly weak and clueless. And then if you look at Megor, basically it's resentment that fuels his entire childhood. And growing up, he feels 
cast off and inadequate, and Visenya seems to have nurtured that. And so if you're looking at, I often think about uh, the psychology of wealth. And like, if you're a wealthy person, like, how do you raise children that aren't spoiled brats? You have to like consciously do something to make that happen. If you just don't do anything, they'll probably grow up to be spoiled brats. Now, one of the ways you can grow up not to be a spoiled brat is to feel downtrodden. And Magor felt extremely downtrodden. So he, <laughs> he yeah. was aggressive and hungry, willing to take risks, willing to be, uh, like I said, just aggressive and, and, and to claim the throne and to claim everything. And Aenys just had none of that instinct at all. Like even Renly had the instinct to seize something when it was there. Like he saw the alliance with Highgarden, he seized it, and then he was ready to march on Storm's End and King Landing and let his army do its work. Whereas mm-hmm. Aenys was like so timid and indecisive that he couldn't even take the field practically. He recalled his he, name. Well, it's right? true. And yeah. He recalls y- his yeah. name. And he, he, uh, he basically is, like you said, he's extremely indecisive and he didn't understand what to do. He didn't understand how to rule. It was almost like Aegon handed him the kingdom but didn't teach him what to do with it. You know, (laughs) and he didn't seem to be getting a lot of great help from his advisors. He seemed to be getting back and forth help or maybe he did get good help, but he just didn't accept it. (laughs) And so with Magor, the parallels to Aenys are a little harder to make. He there's there's a couple of characters that are a little bit like him. Magor, it's a lot easier. Magor is like Joffrey. You've already brought up and he's he's kind of like Joffrey plus the mountain, I think, is a good parallel. He's he's I don't think he's as much like Ramsay as some people are saying, because while they're both ultra cruel, Ramsay enjoys torturing people. We didn't seem to get that from Magor. I don't. We didn't see him enjoying it. We seem like it's 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 a rage. It's rage. Power yeah. thing. Rage. It's rage and power. Not not um, psychopathy. I mean, he is a psychopath, but he's not. He doesn't get pleasure. So at it. I don't. Think, are you are I, you saying that, that Megor is like Grigor? <laughs> oh God, <laughs> <laughs> Grigor Clegane. I'm the mountain that sighs. <sighs> <laughs> and so and I do think the chip on his shoulder is a big thing here he's the guy is full of pride and so many things he does is to prove how good he is you know he's and we see this with this is one of the reasons why Alyssa I think is also one of the most fascinating characters here is that incident where she teases Magor yeah. about not having a dragon she knows what she's doing there everybody knows Magor's a badass by then but she's like are you afraid of the dragons she knows he's not afraid of the dragons. This is a guy that's gone off and fought pirates and, you know, won tournaments against Kingsguard knights that are twice well, I thought that age. was a really uh, interesting line that said a lot without saying very much at all. It's just one line where she just, it just says, His brother's wife teased him about it one day in court, wondering aloud whether my good brother is afraid of dragons. And like you said, she knows he's not really afraid of dragons. So what's she doing there? She's needling him. She's mm-hmm. doing this on purpose to... To, you know, make him fly into a rage, potentially. So it, it kind of shows that there was some sort of, maybe Aenys and Magor got along okay. Magor probably disliked his brother or, or looked down on him or thought he deserved to be king. Whereas Aenys was probably kind of oblivious, as he is with just about everybody, in terms of what they thought of him. He just assumed they liked him. And so what that speaks to is, yeah, Alyssa knows what's going on. And it, it kind of speaks to maybe some tension between the two parties. Maybe like a blacks and greens type of situation. Where, you know, everybody kind of knows what's up. But there's some, there's still tension and pride, and and these are big egos involved, and that makes it all the more surprising that Team Anus 
anus. I, it always slips out. You know, you can't go long. You can't it say that name ten out. times without it. Comes, does, it does it always slip out? out? Does it? Oh god. I'll tell you, it's never slipped out for me. His name is East. Hey, just put a, cor- put a cork in that, would you? Oh. <laughs> ah, shit. <laughs> um, so he. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea what I was going to say. <laughs> Oops. So he, oh, and of course, this one of the biggest. You know, uh, clues to this is is how Magor just held out for Balerion. He's like, I'm gonna have the biggest dragon, but none of Team Aenys ever seemed to realize what this was leading up to, which was Magor and Visenya usurping the throne. Like they did, they they there was this back and forth, apparently some tension, but they just they did they seemed entirely unprepared for <laughs> what Visenya and and Magor did. They didn't see it coming. It's almost like what happened at, at the beginning of the Dance of the Dragons. We know that the Blacks and the Greens were at each other's throats a bit. They didn't like each other. Yet, and Viserys was dying for a while, just like, you know, Aenys was. Aegon. Oh, no, Aenys, no, Aenys was, was dying for a while. Yeah. Like, he was really sick. And then when he finally dies, they see, you know, the throne is usurped, just like it was with Viserys. And the other side who expected to inherit was like caught off guard. And it's like, wait, shouldn't you have seen this coming? Shouldn't you have at least suspected this usurpation? Well, what's, so, what's the common denominator, though, between, you know, the this this crazy usurpation happening is is that these none of the Rhaenyra and Aenys were not in King's Landing when, you know, their rival party seized the throne out from under them. So I think that's that's the, even though they had advanced notice of these uh, of the throne that 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 was going to be at stake for them they they were still you know hundreds of miles away at the at the very least from king's landing before you know their rival took the throne from them that's a good point yeah proximity being in the right place at the right time you know who knew it mattered so much <laughs> you got to be in the right place at the right time to be king <laughs> no whoever gets the crown first is the winner that's how it works right mm-hmm. So one of one of my favorite passages, if I could just uh, throw in a little quote here, yeah, was when was when Magor claimed his dragon. Okay, so what's going on is there's a rebellion in the Eyrie, and so it says whilst the king prevaricated, and that's King uh, Aenys, his lords took to the field. Some acted on their own authority, others in concert with the Dowager Queen. That would be uh, Visenya, of course. In the Vale, Lord Allard Royce of Runestone assembled two score loyal lords and marched against the Eyrie, easily defeating the supporters of the self styled King of Mountain and Vale. But when they demanded the release of their rightful lord, Jonos Arryn sent his brother to them through the moon door. Such was the sad end of Ronald Arryn, who had flown thrice around the giant's lance on Dragonback. The Eyrie was impregnable to any conventional assault, so King Jonos and his diehard followers spat down defiance on the loyalists and settled in for a siege. Until Prince Megor appeared in the sky above, astride Beleriand. The Conqueror's son had claimed a dragon at last, and none other than the Black Dread, the greatest of them all. And then they, they, uh, they instantly throw their leader, uh, basically they sacrifice their leader and beg for mercy, and Megor executes them all anyways. But it's just kind of epic. It's like they don't even know that Balerion is a potential player in the battlefield and all of a sudden it's like what's that it's a bird it's a plane no it's magor on balerian we're all fucked <laughs> that's exactly what i was wah, saying at the wah, beginning wah. right with the realm not being used to dragons they totally didn't if you know if this had been 100 years later they never would have tried this they would have known oh obviously this dragon's just going to come up here and crush us like they were relying on traditional wisdom with regards to the eerie well nope it cannot be assaulted it is you can't take this castle and they're like oh wait yeah we, we forgot about 
this new thing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Jonas didn't uh, didn't think it through very much. <laughs> so we have their their marriages. The marriages of of Aenys and Magor are very important. This, of course really adds to the political tension that comes in the later years, because, of course, both of them are married well before Aegon dies. Aeneas is married in 22, Magor three years later, and Aegon doesn't die till 37. So they're both married for a while. And Aeneas marries Alyssa Velaryon. Now, the Velaryon family tree is interesting here. It's a little bit confusing at this point. We're not going to get into too much, but... There's a lot of, as we all know, there's a lot of intermarrying between Targaryen and Valerian. And Alyssa, apparently her mother, Alyssa Valerian's mother, was a Targaryen. Now, we don't know who this Targaryen was. It's a little confusing because maybe that means we don't think Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys had a sister, another sister. So maybe it was their father's... Like, yeah. One of their father's sisters or something like that. An an aunt or something like that. It's possible. I think we're going to find out a bit more about the Targaryen line beyond Aegon the Conqueror uh, in Fire and Blood Volume 1. You have to imagine that George will expand on that a bit since he has all of this page space in order to, to talk about things like the Targaryens on Dragonstone before Aegon the Conqueror. Yeah, I really want to know more about that. Um, it seems like an interesting time. And you wonder who else did some of these weird Targaryen traditions that kind of died off. Like we know Aenar the Exile had multiple wives and Aegon did. And then Magor kind of tried it, but it didn't go very well. And after that, nah, just it's just done. No one, you know, it just didn't continue. And it, it, partly it was abandoned because it caused civil wars like it did here. I mean, this is what, this is a good example. <laughs> this is, you have two wives of the same husband and... Like, for example, you can just imagine how some of the arguments might have gone. Sure, Aenys came first. He was born before Magor, but Magor came from the elder wife. So some people might have the argument that he comes first because Visenya was the elder, right? Even though he was born later, you know? It's like, I don't think that's a great argument, but someone could have made it at court at the time and other people might have thought it was a good argument. There's a certain kind of lineal descent that descends from like the male child of the eldest female there's a specific word for that i just i'm not smart enough to remember what it was but <laughs> um, so one thing that stood out to me that you what you just said reminded me of was the fact that one of magor's marriages uh was done in the valerian style it says the wedding was yeah. performed on dragonstone under the aegis of the dowager queen visenya as the castle septon refused to officiate magor and his new bride were wed in a valerian rite Wed by blood and fire. What's that about? <laughs> yeah, seriously, that sounds <laughs> that really That sounds cool. freaky. <laughs> and we pour blood all over them. <laughs> basically. Blood orgy. Blood orgy. It's, it's like Carrie. What's interesting, too, is how we see, you know, Westeros, even though it's mostly just the old gods and the new, they accept, you know, foreign marriages. Mm. My favorite mystery about that, and I'm, let me get your opinion on this, is so they, the Targaryens fled Valyria with five dragons. And then a hundred yeah. years later, when they invaded, they only had three. And Balerion uh, is only one of the original five that came with them, whereas Meraxes yeah. and Vagar were born on Dragonstone. So what happened to those other four dragons? And why yes. weren't any other dragons born in that whole hundred years? And then as soon as they come to Westeros, they explode in dragon birth. And there's like a hundred years later, by the time of Jaehaerys' death, there's like 20-some dragons. Please please tell me there's something about comets involved in your answer. Or exploding <laughs> years. Well, I think... Like exploding all over Westeros. 
It's the greasy black stone. I have a theory. I have a theory for this. Now, what happened with the Dance of the Dragons, you know, 150, 130 years after the conquest was there were too many dragons, too many riders, and a civil war kind of was sort of a a foregone conclusion. At some point, this was all going to come to a head. And maybe the Targaryens had figured this out ahead of time because thousands of years of Targaryen history of being living in Valyria, they know how this all works. So what what this means is I think the Targaryens, decent chance they were aware of this happening. Or if they weren't aware of this, 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 what happens if you don't be careful with who many, having too many people have too many dragons. This might explain why Viserys and Aegon and these other, the sons of uh, Aenys didn't ha- seem to have dragons of their own. It might have been, uh, you know, like a, an attitude or a practice that the Targaryens and even the Valyrians may have had, the dragon lords, not just don't let everyone have a dragon, because this is what happens. If you let <laughs> everyone have dragons, eventually they start fighting each other. You have civil wars. So, so you think that, that a dragon has to be bonded to a human in order to survive in the long term? Is that no, a I don't think so. Because we hear about we hear about hatchlings, and we hear about the cannibal coming eating hatchlings. And we hear about older dragons and things like that. What I think may have happened is we may have had if they didn't learn the lesson of don't let everyone have dragons, we may have had a, a, a smaller scale dance of the dragons that just took place on Dragonstone, where the Targaryen there was some Targaryen infighting, and that would explain cool. why. Okay, yeah, I, there weren't other there aren't other Targaryens, and there aren't other dragons. That would that would be why it's so it was so narrow when the conquest started. I can buy that. That'd be cool. So, That's a cool explanation. Yeah, um, and that would also maybe that ties into who Alyssa Valerian's mother and some of these other branches. Because if you look at that old Targaryen tree. They don't have branches. It's just like none of these people seem to have any children, <laughs> which is probably not accurate. It's like, and there's no women on that tree at all, which obviously can't be, you know, that's clearly impossible. What I find, what I find weird is just that like Dragonstone is a volcanic place. It's like we learned that when they keep the dragons in the dragon pit, they gradually get smaller and smaller and they don't, they're not, don't grow as healthy. But the dragons on Dragonstone, that should be optimal breeding grounds for them. So how did they go from five dragons to three dragons in a hundred years? I just don't like either there was some sort of dragon fighting there or like dragon die off, or I just don't understand it. I think part of it is that they lost some of their knowledge. I mean, like, you know, we hear about the the sorcerers of Valyria used horn. They don't have any horn. Targaryens have no horns, you know, like some of these, these techniques and these methods are just they lost well, I've, them, I've written about that actually. That's very fascinating. I'm just, I just don't understand what changed when they came to Westeros. Like, I've, yeah. I've wondered, is it the fact that Westeros is a living continent connected by weirwood roots? Does it have extra magical mojo? And when the Targaryens came there, did they just start like birthing more dragons? Like, that's kind of my crackpot about that one. But I don't really. Yeah, it is. It is kind of odd. Yeah, I agree with you. There's some some unexplainedness. There's still plenty of things about dragons we don't understand. And uh, I'm looking forward to more in, in uh, Blood and Fire, Fire and Blood, whatever it ends up being called. <laughs> and of course, in A Song of Ice and Fire proper, we're, we're certainly to learn, certain to learn more about it there. <laughs> so one, um, when uh, Megor gets married, of course, there's some, you know, before he gets married, there's, you know, some to do about who he's going to marry. And this, of course, is fodder for future problems. Now, right away, the proposal is to solve the problem is to unite the two k- branches by having Megor marry Reyna, which is weird that people were against this. Avuncular marriages, and avuncular means uncle to niece or niece or aunt to nephew, is <laughs> not 
prohibited. We have two cases of semi-avuncular marriages in the Stark family tree, and it didn't seem to be a big problem. And we have Alice Karstark <laughs> almost being forcibly married to Cregan, and that was wrong. Like, Cregan's efforts were wrong, immoral, etc., illegal, but no one ever commented on the incest part of that. The incest of it all. <laughs> so... I think so. This what this says to me is it was politics. The Targaryens, if they had been allowed to marry Reyna to Magor, things would have probably gone a lot better. <laughs> but the High Septon and the High Towers seem to have had their say, and they're like, "No, this is this is wrong. This is against our religion." Which, as I've just explained, it, it probably wasn't. But they made a big stink as if it was, and so the two branches remain separate, and that had a. A domino effect. So let's let's get some takes here from everybody about the High Septon and the faith being involved in this. And this is obviously one of the biggest parts of the narrative is the fall of the High Sparrow, or not the High Sparrow, the fall of the High Septon's power base in general, as the High Septon and the, the faith are a powerful institution that really starts to lose power the more the Targaryens rise until they're completely reduced during Jaehaerys' time. So Let's start with uh, Jeff. We haven't heard from you in a minute. What is... Uh, <laughs> um, what is that sound? It's his child. Oh, is that, Don, is that Libby Fish? Libby, Libby Fish is making a cameo. Um, <laughs> yeah, he said it in the chat, too. And she's in the she's in the chat, too. So she's... Uh, she's uh, no, that, that's his wife, actually. <laughs> she just wails. It's actually me. Spawn of Beefish. <laughs> I, I was I was really interested in this whole dynamic between the faith and the uh, and the crown um, because it was it was essentially a, a very new dynamic even though you had the faith of the seven being uh, dominant south of the neck now you had the faith that had to answer to one king as opposed to kind of having to tailor their beliefs maybe and and maybe hopefully we'll find a little bit more in fire and blood but maybe tailor their beliefs to the different regions and, and, and what their strongest base of support being in Old Town. Um, it, it was interesting in you know the Conquest chapter where you find out that the High Septon was being urged to oppose Aegon. And again, he's being – both instances where he was crowned and when he was crowned again, but he ends up you know coming out in support of Aegon because he really didn't have a choice. He didn't want to see Old Town suffer the same fate that Harrenhal suffered. Um so I was I was really interested in this whole dynamic about the faith coming into greater prominence with Aenys and and Maegor and and I wonder um, whether maybe they saw an opportunity at least after a little bit of time after Aegon passed on in order to become more prominent and to assert themselves politically because a lot of the things that they end up opposing about Aenys and about Maegor were things that they were okay with Aegon doing and I wonder if that's because they were looking at the situation and realizing that both kings had a certain weakness about themselves politically and that they were able to be opposed by uh, by the by the faith and that faith became and religion became a unifying factor in order to kind of rally the realm against both of these Targaryens. I would agree with that. Yeah, the um there was a lot of opportunity, there were a lot of fires to be stoked in that regard. What about you, LML? What do you uh what's your initial take on the faith? Uh, marrying into all this. So the faith, I feel like the high towers and the faith and old town faction in general, they always employ the judo technique. 
So like the Andals come and invade and everybody else resists them and has a big fight. And meanwhile, in the Reach, they mostly make deals and marriages and sort of absorb them and then sort of gently bend their bend things back the way they want to. Like the Andals came and they have their faith, but Garth the Green has stained glass windows in the Starry Sept, just like the Faith does. So like they like they didn't get rid of Garth the Green, and I feel like they did the same thing with the dragons. Like the dragons came to Old Town, and the Faith could have resisted them, but they made a calculation, and they were like, "Yeah, we're just going to get you know burned if we do that." So they made a show of accepting the Targaryens. But then as soon as they had a chance, as soon as the good king, Aegon, is gone and they smelled weakness, they're right back to preaching about incest and stirring up a rabble and, and doing up the rest. So I feel like you made a point when we were chatting before the episode of Z's that before the Valerians or the Targaryens came to Westeros, the High Septim was by far the most powerful person in the land. Uh, yes. Right? And so when that all changed, like – he, when he saw those dragons, he realized, like, I am no longer going to be the undisputed most powerful person in the land. But instead of just, like, throwing everything at the resistance, he, he used the judo technique and sort of took that momentum and turned it around. And to Aegon's credit, he realized that he had a much better chance of governing if he had if he co-opted the High Septon or allowed himself to be co-opted or however you want to call that. Like, and so that's one of the main thing that both Megor and Aenys missed is like, you know, the high Septon is still very powerful and you can't like, you have to maintain that relationship. We get the feeling like Aegon spent a lot of time maintaining that relationship for 20 years while he was King. And it was, it yeah. Was, and then it, we said there were six different high Septons during that time. Well, the other thing too, about, until the, the new one, yeah. About Aegon too, is, is that George has confirmed that he accepted the faith of the seven, as opposed to the old Valyrian gods, as a political move. So Aegon was very right. aware of the principles of of be, of looking Westerosi, of of seeming like the common people, of the small folk, and of the lords, most of the lords that were, were living south of the Neck. So it, it's a very astute political move on Aegon's part. And Aenys and, and Magor didn't make the same sort of overtures that Aegon, that their father made, and that, that really had consequences for both of their reigns. Mm-hmm. Let me jump in and say, the, the Dragon Demands points out there's a line in the book that says that Valerian fighting Quicksilver was the first time dragons had fought since before the Doom of Valyria, which means the Dance of the Dragon 0.03 is dead. So mm-hmm. we got to look for other explanations then. So good catch there. Very true, yeah, the, very true. The line specifically just says had con- you know fought with one another not in Westeros or anything specific like that yeah so no loopholes at all what's that no loopholes no loopholes yep all right well that's that yeah, unless it's a mistake <laughs> which is a a thin hope at this <laughs> point so anyway well, let's move on let's see here so yeah the, the faith is a part of this the whole way through we're not we're not done with talking about them but we wanted to get them introduced and of course they come up huge throughout this story in several places. They have a huge impact on politics. And like you said, Aegon seemed to have a good way, seemed to be able to handle it well. He seemed to be able to balance, you know, building his regime while keeping the faith happy. But neither Aenys nor Megor were good at that. So, so if, that, I, if I may point ahead. out, like we, we were talking at the beginning about how you can mine uh, these these sort of tertiary books for uh, context of the main story. So when you read about all of this conflict between the crown and the faith, you really begin to understand how foolish Cersei was 
to let the warrior sons reestablish oh themselves. Gosh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like you don't appreciate it when you first read it and you gradually, as the book goes on, you start to realize that she's blundered. But when you get, when you get this history, you really realize like Cersei was a fool. <laughs> yeah, really. You're right. That's a great point. This is one of the best, one of the best connections to the modern story is seeing what the faith was and where they, as a, as a hint as to where they might be headed. I mean, Megor had a freaking Balerion the Black Dread and could not put down that rebellion. You understand? Yeah. Like, it didn't stop them. Like, that's one of the things we've talked about how a lot of people are going to be afraid of a dragon. They're going to be like, okay, that's too much for me. That's too intimidating. But zealots, nah, zealots, you need more to intimidate zealots. They, they're not intimidatable, really, because they, when they die, they think they're going to, you know, some version of heaven, and that's just a better place to be in their minds. So you really can't intimidate such types, but Magor, really, that's his only gear is I will beat you. <laughs> he doesn't like look for another way to resolve this problem. He's like, no, I'll just beat you harder. <laughs> yeah. Very Joffrey like. Um, so we get to the marriages. Of course, we go back to this, this marriage of Magor and Cerise Hightower and a couple of interesting things about that. The fact that Cerise Hightower wasn't married and she was 10 years older than Magor <laughs> is a little bit interesting. Tw- being 23 being a 23-year-old unmarried Hightower is suspicious. A uh, woman, of an unmarried Hightower daughter. So my first thought when I saw that was maybe they were trying to get her to marry Anis. And then when she, that didn't happen, they are like, well, let's try to marry her to Magor. You know, kind of like how Tywin was holding on to Cersei, although Cersei never got so old. Um, I'm calling 23 old here. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so that's, I think that's pretty interesting. And of course, this is all ties into the fact that Cerise Hightower was the niece of the High Septon himself, the one around from apparently 25 AC all the way up to around 43. Um, after six High Septons die in kind of a you know, 20-year-ish span, we have this one who lasts for quite a while. Yeah. And now to be clear, this is the mother's side. He's not a High Tower himself. This was clarified by Ilio. Um, he, this High Septon was not a high tower. He is the he is the, uh, the the brother of Cerise Hightower's mother. To be clear, now uh, do we do do we find out who actually arranged the marriage? Was it Aegon himself who arranged the marriage between Cerise and Magor? I I guess he would have had to approve of it. I guess um you know the the idea the High Septon was like no, do not marry Reyna to Magor, and so. And then oh, suddenly his niece is put forth as a suggestion <laughs> instead. This is why I was like, this is why I made the point about a vunk. They, they made a big deal out of a vuncular marriage being not okay, even though it is okay in all these other spots, which is why it's, this is like they were trying to get this high tower marriage to happen. I think that's, that's, you know, conspiracy theory wise, this has a lot of, there's a lot to support this notion, even though it's certainly far from proven. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like an Aegon move as he continues to reinforce his the the state's relationship with the with the faith of the seven, and that he's marrying you know the the High Septon's niece to his son. So it's it seems like a very political move on on Aegon's part in order to reinforce a, a unifying political and religious and cultural institution with the Targaryens. It seems like a very smart move on Aegon's part if he was the one that was. Perhaps behind it, or even if he was the only, even if he was the one approving it, it's a smart decision on his part in order to bring the High Towers and the Targaryens together into in, into the family, so to speak. Yeah, King's Landing is a new place, right? So Old Town was the big biggest city in Westeros. It's the cultural, it was the religious 
and cultural and learning center of Westeros. So make you're right. Aegon tying his family to those things is really smart because those are the existing power structures. There's the Citadel. There's the High Septon and the High Towers, you know, ruling the richest, largest city in Westeros. And it's not the richest and largest anymore, but it was at the time. So, yeah, so you're totally right. This is this is shows Aegon had, you know, he was more than a conqueror. He had a lot of political savvy, which was not passed down <laughs> to his descendants, at least not completely. But, of course, you know, most of the interest, a lot of the most interesting things happen after his death. So let's let's kind of cover this remaining time. This is a, this is where there's a bit of a gap. We don't know a whole lot of what happens in Aegon's reign, say, after Magor gets married and in between that and his death, right? Which is 12 years later. Magor marries at age 13 in AC 25. Visenya gives him Dark Sister. And then in 37 AC, Aegon dies and they have the funeral, which the funeral is a really interesting moment. Um, and Blackfire is put in the pyre and retrieved and then given to Magor, which is maybe not a good decision. <laughs> that thir- that 13 years in between, if you were like writing out a timeline, it would just say broods. <laughs> it's like broods menacingly, you know, in the darkness, 13 years, and then reappears to give the eulogy at his father's funeral. And, and uh, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about the, the funeral pyre though. There's a couple of interesting yeah, points to talk about there. So um, the pyre was started by Vagar's flame. And so a lot of people were wondering, you know, why didn't the Valyrian steel melt? Um, You know, but Vagar only lit the pyre. He didn't like continually roast the roast the bonfire. So that's the answer. The dragon lit the bonfire. But then thereafter, the the Valyrian steel sword is essentially just laying in a normal bonfire, which is no big deal for Valyrian steel. It did come out a little bit darker, which were almost it's almost implied like that's some sort of magical thing more so than like just it being burned in a fire, but it's hard to say. It's just one of those weird little things that was thrown in. Yeah, it was kind of cool. And, and and we also get this this bit that Magor does the eulogy. Yeah. That must have been interesting. <laughs> it doesn't seem like the type that would be good at that sort He's of thing. He's a very impassioned and articulate speaker. It's <laughs> a little imagine him, fact. Can you just imagine him speaking in like three word sentences? Aegon was my father. He killed a lot of people. <laughs> He was a great king. That was not a three-word sentence. I'm sorry, that was four. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. shoot. <laughs> oh, man, we're failing. We're not very good Magors no, here. not really. We, we wouldn't have given a good eulogy either. <laughs> and so, right, basically right after Aegon's death, we see the talk begin. We see people start to go, eh, Aenys, maybe he's not strong enough to do all this, you know. Westeros is going to require someone strong, and this guy isn't that. And even Visenya gets in on it. We get a a parent quote from her. Now, just like real history, we get quotes from real-world leaders and speeches from people like Sulla and Napoleon that didn't really happen. The uh, Historians, it's one of the weird trends among historians that's existed for a long time, is they just insert speeches and words into people's mouths, and George knows that, so he's doing that here. We don't know this is a direct quote, but the fact is that apparently Visenya said things like this, and that's kind of odd that she would, you know, undermine the regime, except that it's less odd when you consider who she's undermining it for, her own son, and she brings up this thing about Blackfire. What do you, what's your guys' take on this about how the symbols of power and how he didn't seem to grasp this and that Magor later adopted all of Aegon's symbols of power, Balerion, Blackfire, you know, 
etc. It's fascinating how Megor and Visenya really grasped this whole idea of symbol politics, and they did it through the instrument through the the instruments of the state that were visible that were things that we you could you could see you could see Magor holding Blackfire you can see Magor riding Balerion you can see you know Magor's crown which was the crown of Aegon the Conqueror and it's fascinating to me how Aenys just totally just didn't see this he he was relying on his own personal charisma and charm in order to maintain his power but that simply wasn't enough especially you know, we we kind of get get this perspective of being a mostly literate society that that we have laws. We have in, in the United States, we have a constitution and a bill of rights and these different types of contractual ways that we look at governance. But in a Westeros, where most of the people are illiterate, at least most of the small folk and some of the lords as well, the types of symbols of politics—a sword, a dragon, a crown—are extremely powerful. And Annie's just didn't understand that and get that whatsoever, and. You know, it's interesting that Visenya really kind of grappled onto it. You know, the the quote from the Sons of the Dragon is that, you know, Visenya sees that Blackfire, the sword is given to, that Aenys grants the sword to Magor. Then Aenys seems to say like, oh, you know, you're you're, you're the warrior of, of the two of us. Why don't, you can have Blackfire. Why not? Right? Just use it in my service, <laughs> which is so dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> He has no idea what he's doing. He has doing. no ideas. <laughs> and Vicini picks up on Mealy. You know, there's a quote that says where she says, even Aini sees it. Why else would he give Blackfire to my son? He knows that only Magor has the strength to rule. And that's really, you know, Vicini gets it immediately. And Aini's is just so lost in the sauce in this whole... <laughs> Lost in the sauce. Yeah, he's wearing he's wearing the gold crown of the High Septon. Right. The High Septon gave him. Even it sounds like after the the Faith was basically playing him like a punk and calling yep. him not the real king. And right. so it's just like. And then didn't we we were talking before the episode Aziz and we kind of figured out that when uh, Aenys went on his royal progress, he didn't take his dragon with him. Right? Is that what you were saying? No. No. Yeah. Which no. which is silver at he, home. Ne- he never even. U- he used, didn't use it in war either or, or any – I don't if, – yeah. if I'm not mistaken, right? He, you only have to make a couple of examples with dragons. Like I felel like Aegon understood that. That's why we only have one Heron Hall and one Field of Fire. He understood that if you did something incredibly violent and final at the key moment that you could set an example that would echo for a long time. And Aenys had that chance right at the beginning of his reign. He had four small rebellions and if he had just – crushed one or two of them with dragon fire and let some other of his liege lords crush the rest, everyone would have been like, yep, you can't mess with these dragon lords. And Maker got that. But instead... You know, Maker, Maker went up yeah. to the Vale of Aaron and he demonstrated the power that he had by riding Balerion up to end that usurpation by uh, of the Aaron throne. Exactly. Exactly. And Aenys was... Where, where was Aenys in all of this shit? You know what I mean? <laughs> Just chilling. And, and this is really interesting too because... Visenya, you know, if we try to figure out Visenya's angle on all this, I don't know that it was just, I don't think it was ambition. I think there's a case to be made that she legitimately thought Aenys was going to screw it up and that's why he had to be replaced and that's why Magor was the better choice. Not because she just was like, my son's better. She, it was, it was based on evidence, you know, which is that the worst thing you can do is what Aenys did. Um, which was nothing. When all these rebellions break out, you have Lados, you have the Veil, you have the Faith, you have 
hair in the red. You have all the, the like, I'm, I'm probably the missing one, king. but there's the vulture king. Yeah, a huge one. So there's so many of them. And he did the worst thing possible, which is nothing. And the reason that's the worst is because the whole point of being king is to defend the realm. And this is a new kingdom. And here he is not defending the realm. And what happens instead is the regions defend themselves. They're proving to themselves that they don't need this king above them because he's not doing anything. And Visenya, who had been left in charge of ruling King's Landing while, uh, Aegon and Rhaenys were off warring. She had learned this lesson because she's been ruling King's Landing all this time. Or maybe she had already figured it out because she's just that kind of person. Either way, she knew that. And so I, I wonder how much of it was pragmatic rather than just, you know, my son is better. You know, just realizing that the whole thing would collapse if she didn't do something. I mean, in George's it. universe, it could be both that you have your own personal stake in it. Yes. And you also have the kind of objective, like, you know, this, my, my, you know, nephew i guess so to speak um and 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 half son too right because he, he should he would Annie's would be a half son and a nephew of of asenia because he was from aegon yeah <laughs> but there, there's there's that whole thing where you have both elements of the personal and the objective kind of meeting at an intersection which is great and, and that's part of where george's power in his writing comes out in the narrative in in the books and in in the novellas and it also comes out here in the history for Aenys and, and, Aenys and Maegor. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to say one quick thing, which was that uh, we we're talking so much about the different importance of symbols. And that makes me think of the upcoming clash we have in the actual main series. The you know upcoming Dance of Dragons 2.0 that we have with uh, Aegon potentially set to get all of these symbols of power. That he might get Blackfire, he might even get Aegon's crown, etc. That Daenerys has the dragons on the other hand. But in terms of symbols, we're seeing these symbols be important later on too. That's very true. They're coming back. Like the you know the Aegon's crown is long gone. That was lost in Dorne during Daron the First's conquest. But the Blackfire might be reappearing on screen. A lot of us believe that's coming. And, of course, the reappearing of dragons is pretty gigantic. So, so back when uh, when George was reading A Dance with Dragons before the, the book was released, he read a version of what became A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion 3, where um, – oh, gosh. I'm, I'm drawing a blank now. The, the hat – the half maester. It's Tyrion. Yeah, Alden half maester is talking with uh, a duck and uh, the other dude whose whose name I'm, I'm forgetting. And and Illyrio. They're oh, talking right, with Illyrio. Right. He's talking with Illyrio, and they're all talking and they're going back and forth. And Tyrion is trying to interpret what they're saying, but he doesn't know Valyrian that well. But he catches three three things that are saying that they're that are in the chests for Aegon, and there was um, gold armor and a sword apparently was a big part of what they were talking about but george ends up later editing that out of a dance with dragons and so that led a lot of people to include myself to think that perhaps that aegon and the golden company will have blackfire when they you know present aegon to the common people you know come the winds of winter which is something that seems like it's going to be happening in the next book Talk about symbols. Yep, that'd be a bit. I don't one. see why you wouldn't do that. <laughs> and uh, Aziz, if you recall from our House Dane episodes, we speculated about the different ways that Dawn might come out into the field. And one of the things we talked about was Darkstar stealing Dawn and then basically doing a bad Sir Arthur Dane impression and joining Fagon's Kingsguard. And we were talking about it specifically because it would be such a powerful symbol to have a Dane. He's trying to be Rhaegar's son, right? Yeah. 
with Dawn in his Kingsguard, right? And so that's why it makes a lot of sense. Just like Arthur Dan, you know. It's so awesome. Yeah, I love that. It really fits nicely. And if we see Blackfire and Dawn next to each other, I'm going to be, uh, uh, I don't want to say anything vulgar, but... Uh, that is sword porn. That excited. is serious yeah, sword excited. porn. Those, the, those swords need to mate and make new baby swords. Okay, so let's let's take care of a, a few shout-outs. Um, normally, we do this around halfway through the episode. I'm not sure if this is... We're probably a little past we're halfway. We're at an hour and a half, so yeah, yeah we're past, we're past that. halfway, but we'll probably go above two hours, but probably not three. Um, so let's see here. Thanks to... The History of Westeros Blood Riders, Kohol Koei, Master of the Bow, called Sun Piercer, and Vorsaki, Wielder of a Valyrian Steel Arak with a Dragon Bone Hilt. And Kohol Koei has volunteered to be an administrator for a Facebook group that we're getting started soon. We're going to have a History of Westeros Facebook group where we're only going to let people in who listen to the show. We don't want, you know, a lot of other people in here. Um, we want it just to be us, our friends, you guys, all, you know, regular listeners and all that. I'm going to invite a bunch of, like, Lord of the Rings fans. <laughs> you. Yeah. And uh, so we're, we're maybe looking for one or two more people to volunteer to administer that because administering can be a bit work. And we don't want to take away from our writing scripts time. So we, we it's, it's, a, it's a thing we don't want to do lightly. Um, but we also don't want to add a lot to our plate. So if anyone's interested in that, just uh, hit us up at westeroshistory at gmail.com or on Twitter or, or any of the other history. ways. I'm sorry? Or Westeros History. That or, works too. What did I say? Westeros History. Westeros? Yes. Don't yeah. email Westeros History because that's not us. <laughs> um, also, thanks to our uh, northern... Anus, king of Westeros. <laughs> 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 also, thanks to our northern champions, Jay Wilson, Winter's King... Stir Stephen, the Hammer of the North, Lady Ar Ardross, Mother of Wolves, Winter's King, Lord of the First Men, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Brian the Return, Knight of the Last House, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Song, and Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words Are Wind, Deeds Are Stone. Yeah, yeah. Also, thanks to Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, and if you are going to Ice and Fire Con or Con of Thrones... Conveniently, you can get $5 off a ticket of either of those cons by using the uh, promo code HISTORY. Uh, history, the code works for either Con of Thrones or Ice and Fire Con. We hope to see you at both of those. And whichever, you guys are both going to one of those two, right? Isn't that right? I actually am not able to make both because we, um, my wife and I found out that we're expecting another one. Uh, Congrats. Yes. Thanks. All right. That's a good reason. Hey, yeah, that's a good reason <laughs> so, as those reasons come. So you're going to, you can't go to either? I can't, no. Oh, okay. Well, bummer. Well, maybe next year. What about, but David, you are going to be showing up at, at one of this time, right? Yeah, Con of Thrones. Uh, it's cool. going to be my first con ever. And Excellent. we'll see you at another con with George R. R. Martin later that year, which will be WorldCon in San Jose, California, where That's I used right. to live. So I'm pretty excited yeah. for that, to see a bunch of friends. and Yeah, I'll get to play host for you, yeah, play host for you guys a little And bit. hopefully George will release something new by then. I really don't think The Winds of Winter will be out by then. but then We might have Blood and Fire. That's, yeah. that's a little, you know, that's possible. We'll see. We shall see, yes. All right. Uh, let us move onward, onward. Let's talk about the reign of Aenys. We talked about the beginning of his reign with all the rebellions breaking out, but let's get into it in more detail. Um, as you said, he at first was crowned wearing his father's crown, but he switched to the crown that the faith made him. And as we pointed out, that was probably a bad decision. Um, he was... You know, we talked also about how he's he was very much loved. He thought he was and was confused by what was going on around him. And 
not only was he confused, but he was deeply impacted by it. Now, there's there's some suggestion in the world of Ice and Fire, but not in Sons of the Dragon, that Visenya may have had something to do with Aeneas' death. But regardless of whether she did or not, he seems to have been extremely, to have physical manifestations of his stress. He seems to have aged a lot. Um, and that seems to be outside of anything Visenya may have been doing. So what takes do we have on that? It's 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 interesting if when I, when I read the world of ice and fire, I thought I had a very clear feeling that Visenya was responsible for Aeneas's death. It, it seems like there's a bit of ambiguity that's built into the Sons of the Dragon about whether that Visenya was responsible for Aeneas's death, especially since he's recovering from whatever was ailing him when he comes into Visenya's care. Um, but that. But then he dies suddenly when he finds out that his his son and and daughter are being besieged at Craig Hall. Yeah, um, and we 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 hear that you know right away. There's a lot of these revolts. You know, we we talked about all this already, and his poor response to it. And then things start to shape up when Magor gets involved and the lords do their own thing. We hear about we hear a lot oh, of don't talk, Aziz. Don't talk. There was no audio for you. I oh. muted it and it didn't unmute. Oh, okay. Whoops. We had a little mute It was there. my bad. I had to cough and I... <laughs> Man, that was so brilliant what you said just now. <laughs> yeah, I really just blew the whole thing wide open. And right I couldn't there. possibly repeat it. I don't that. even... You couldn't, no. We don't... Yeah, we, we can't even go on. <laughs> so what I was saying was that... It was from the beginning of, of after Jeff finished talking. To be clear. <laughs> there was some good... There was a, despite the revolts that happened at the beginning of Aeneas' reign, since those were handled pretty well in the long run, at first the response was bad, but things, things got handled pretty well. And people saw that even though Aeneas was not a good king, they all were made aware that Magor exists. And you don't want to, as much as you can step up to Aeneas, you can't step up to Magor so easily. And the, and this, this still, this created political opportunities for people. Like the faith, of course, are still very involved. They're still pushing their agenda. They're still trying to fight for scraps of power. And we don't need to get into the individual rebellions too deep, but it is cool to see some of the characters that come on screen. Like, for example, Savage Sam Tarley and Lady Ellen Karen and Harmon Nono's Dondarian. So... What do you guys, any, anything cool that you guys took from reading some of these characters? Ashea, did you have, uh, I know you, you were a fan of... Uh... Yeah, one thing in particular, which was Allard Royce. We didn't know this Lord Royce's name. And I, I it's really dumb, the reason that I liked his name. I just thought of a mallard. <laughs> He's so a I'm duck I'm picturing Royce. a duck. And it's like all these bird, you know, veilman kind of characters. It seemed fitting. It's stupid. <laughs> but it's, I picture a duck. <laughs> like uh, you mean wait you mean like uh, Raleigh Duckfield yeah exactly <laughs> uh, LML what about you did you uh, any of these other characters like the Vulture King or Oris Onehand any of these, anything you want to say about any of these cool historical figures so I really liked and my favorite part of this whole of the Sons of the Dragon was the Vulture King uh, I really really liked um some of the mystery behind him and his revolt. And I liked this kind of concept of this insurgency that ends up exploding into this full fledged assault on castles in the Dornish reaches. And I really, I, I like that a lot. Um, I, 
I really uh, the the thing I was I was always curious about was how much House Martell was supporting the Vulture King, and I wasn't. And you get the impression from reading the Sons of the Dragon that they were that the Martells were behind the Vulture King, or at least supporting them. And you do have evidence that there are knights and that there are soldiers that probably had fought against Aegon the Conqueror during the Dornish War that end up supporting the Vulture King. But I was curious what you all thought about whether the Martells were supporting the Vulture King or not. I think that, I think probably, to be honest, I don't think that bitterness and, you know, thoughts of revenge go away that quickly. I think it's exactly what we're seeing with Doran Martell later, not exactly, but that they're willing to bide their time and, and approach things from under the surface. So I think it's more likely than not. I wouldn't say I'm 100%, though. What about you guys? Yeah, Aegon and Rhaenys did a lot of damage down there because Dorne wouldn't yeah. submit and they got real brutal. They were burning castles. They were doing nasty stuff. And I, so I agree that Dorne, the Dorne remembers. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> look at it this, look at it this the way. The South I mean, remembers. They're, they're, they're in charge. So if they allow it to go on and don't do anything to stop it, that's essentially being complicit in any ways. Yeah. That's true. It's their job. And we hear nothing about them sending troops. You know, we we hear not a peep of her sending her own armies to do anything about it. So, yeah. So whether they allowed it to happen or directly funded it, it's almost just like, how far did they go in aiding the crime? But there's no question that they weren't doing anything to stop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's some other interesting stuff here with this uh, Vulture King as well. For instance, we got uh, him put down by quite a quite a group of names there. We got <laughs> yeah, Savage Sam Tarly, Ori's One Hand Baratheon, Harmon No Nosed Dundarian, <laughs> and Lady Ellen Karen, because there's a woman in there too, which is pretty cool. But we also get uh, another one of those actual quotes in there from Harmon with some, you know, casual racism, <laughs> where he says the. Vulture, this vulture king is half mad and his followers are a rabble, undisciplined and unwashed. We can smell them coming from 50, we can smell them coming 50 leagues away. Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of, that, that whole smells Dornish thing must be like a common racial yeah. slur, you know, because you have that. In, it must be. From, yeah, Aries said yeah, that, right? Sm- yeah, it's a, it's a common racial slur for people darker than other people, period. So mm. it's true to life. Okay. Yeah. It's funny that we have Oris one hand and and Harmon no nose. Well, what what body parts were Savage Sam and Lady Ellen missing? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can't be in this army. I you're thought of Tyrion something. and Jamie there, by the way, <laughs> nice. myself. Yeah, one, uh, hand, one and hand and no nose. Oh wow, that's oh, cool. yeah, that's a cool parallel. Yeah, that's that's what I thought of too. It was it's kind of uh, I almost want I almost uh, seeing so many names that call out to characters in the main story it made me want to like reread that over and over and look for some weird symbolic parallel but i haven't had a chance to do yeah, it. i like doing that as well oftentimes it's a stretch but sometimes just a name being near a section where they talk about a certain thing just makes you makes your head start spinning you know how about mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. how about all the comparisons well, speaking of always one hand and and the hacking off of body parts that's got uh, we've got a couple of references that uh, we can relate that to in this story um, yeah so yeah, so there's you know, a, this them. is yeah, this is one of the best little mini stories in the book, and it's also like fairly horrible the way it unravels. It's a good example of George. He, George has this way of writing horror where the sentence gets progressively worse as it goes. <laughs> so I'm going to show you this technique here. So it says, when Walter Will was delivered into his hands, and that's or, uh, Baratheon's hand, Oris Baratheon's hands, wounded but alive, Lord Oris said, your father took my hand. 
I claim yours as repayment. So saying, he hacked off Lord Walter's sword hand. Then he took his other hand, and both his feet as well, calling them his usury. So it's just like, at first you're like, okay, hand for hand, and then it's like, oh wait, oh, the other hand, oh, and both, like, what way? Well, that's fucked up. And then it says, strange to say, Lord Baratheon died on the march back to Storm's End of the wounds he himself had taken during the battle, but his son Davos always said he died content, smiling at the rotting hands and feet that dangled in his tent like a string of onions. Which is, of course, a Davos onions. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's a pretty, a pretty, and, and of course, Davos had his fingers cut off. So there's like, you know, yeah. and he serves the Baratheon. So here we have a Davos Baratheon. Yeah. Uh, and then, anyways. So then here's a, as another great example of this, in the world of Ice and Fire, we get the story of somebody named Cal Daco, who was a Cal who became famous by burning Ibish which was the town that the Ibanese built on the mainland of Essos. And it says, Caldaco was said to take great pride in being accounted the dragon of the north. But at the end, he came to rue it. For when his calisar was broken in battle by that of Caltemo, the younger Cal took the elder captive and fed him to the flames. So that's bad. Then it says, <laughs> cutting off his hands and feet and genitals and roasting them before his eyes. Okay, that's worse. <laughs> then... After first burning his wives and sons in the same manner. <laughs> You're right, man. That just gets escal- it just escalates. We have the comparison with uh, Magor and this rebel leader, Watt the, uh, Watt the Hewer, who Magor had his body parts chopped off and made him watch his marriage. And that's very similar to, since we already compared Magor to Gregor, Gregor cutting off the, the arms and legs of Vargo Hote and making him watch things like that. So that's, boy, all the body part chopping issues are, it's a lot of, a lot of that here. It's an abattoir for sure. <laughs> so at first, the faith was, okay, despite all these other things going wrong for Aeneas, the faith was okay with him. They, he, he was sort of continuing his father's um, pattern of keeping the faith happy enough. You know, they didn't like a lot of the things that were happening with the Targaryen dynasty, but it was good enough. They were, but then he just, I don't get what he was thinking. I mean, he just decides to, uh, he, he does react properly to Magor declaring that he's setting Cerise aside and taking a second wife, which is obviously a giant scandal. And I really wonder Visenya's role in this because Visenya always seemed to be like, you can get away with this because we're powerful. We're the Targaryens. We can do this. That seemed to be a lot how she handled a lot of things. But I maybe, maybe even she advised against this. It's, it's really unclear. Aeneas, at first, he takes the side of the faith and says, you can't do this. You have to, you know, you're going to either have to be exiled or you take back your own bride. And, of course, this is partly the reason this is such a big problem is the High Septon is Cerise's uncle. So this is personally offensive to his family and his in-laws, the Hightowers. And so Aenys handled that well. He exiled Magor, did the right stuff. But then he just immediately turns around and marries his kids to each other, which was so blatantly against what the Faith wanted and just so obviously going to blow up in his face. And he still seemed confused by the reaction to it. Ah, Aenys... <laughs> so let's talk about the the warrior sons here and how they they start to make their move. Who wants to take this away? You get Jeff. You want to take this away here? Okay. So the 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 faith is obviously using the opportunity of Annie's being weak in order to uh, you know grab power for themselves and to 
further anti-Targaryen sentiment throughout, you know, this, the all the kingdoms south of the Neck. Um, so as we're coming up to the end of Aenys's reign, what the warriors start, warrior sons start doing is infiltrating King's Landing, which was still a nascent city, wasn't really the King's Landing that we know in A Game of Thrones and in the rest of the novels. So we start to see that the warrior sons occupy Rhaenys's hill. And so they start bringing a whole lot of their troops into the city itself. And more than just the warrior sons, who, again, if, if you guys are unfamiliar, are the the folks who are coming from more noble houses, more knightly houses, and they have a lot of the, the military training and everything like that in order to sustain themselves on the battlefield. But they also bring in poor fellows as well, which are the, more of the small folk folks, the small folk folks, who are uh, coming into King's Landing, who are the, the peasants who are also opposing the, the Targaryens as well. Um, given these circumstances, Aenys thinks, and, and probably smartly, at least from a tactical tactical perspective, that he needs to get the f out of King's Landing because it's it's unsustainable. Um, there's no, it's it's not the Red Keep where you have a castle within the the city walls of King's Landing itself. You have essentially just a, a glorified mansion on uh, in, in King's Landing. So he decides that he's going to get out of the city itself. But just before he leaves, two of the poor fellows infiltrate the Red Mance. And, uh, and and try to come in and, and kill Aenys, and he's saved by his one of his Kingsguard, Sir Raymond Baratheon. Uh, two days later, he leaves King's Landing, but and he goes to, to Dragonstone, which is smart, because Dragonstone's an island. It's also the traditional seat of Targaryen power. And when he arrives, Visenya tells him, you were a fool and a weakling. Do you think any man would have dared speak so to your father? You have a dragon. Use him. Fly to Old Town and make this starry sept another Harrenhal. Or give me leave and let me roast this pious fool for you. Vega grows old, but her fires still burn hot. And it, it, it's clear that Aenys is in a no-win situation with um, abandoning King's Landing because it, it's going to fall unless he uses dragon fire. But if he uses dragon fire in King's Landing, he's burning his own city, and you're just—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's bad news for for the Targaryens. Um, the the question I have is. Was when Visenya is talking to Aenys, is she giving him intentionally bad advice? Because she's saying, "Go to Old Town, burn the city itself, burn the Starry Sept, you know, kill all of these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, which we assume are living there since Old Town at this time is the largest and most populous city in Westeros." Is she giving him intentionally bad advice that'll turn all of the people against against her stepson, or is she giving him? advice is she saying what she would do or is 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 or is it bad advice what do you guys think about that i think it was legitimate advice because it seems to be consistent with her general attitude she's kind of a hardliner she always seems to favor the brutal methods and and we get somewhat similar comments from her during her brother's reign you know about being tough and and you know just burning people and doing you know being violent when you know as a generally as a first policy. So I can kind of buy it. And, and given the, how she seems to have encouraged some of Magor's more brutal behavior, maybe not all of it. Um, it's, it's to me, it fits in with her, her methodology, especially as we see her go burn a bunch of castles, you know, later. There's literally not one sentence about Visenya restraining Magor in any way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, nothing. I, well, no, there is one, there's one. She, she argued for some of the Lords to be, after the rebellion to be given lighter treatment. But there's, there's one sentence. 
and and he he didn't do that, did he? No. Well, well he did here's the thing: like <laughs> burning Heron Hall as you know, as necessary and both horrific as the act was that Aegon did during the conquest maybe affected a few thousand people at most, right? We would think that maybe, I don't know, I'll, I'll leave you guys who are more of the historical experts to talk about it. A thousand, two thousand people were in the, the castle itself when Aegon's truce besieged the, the castle? I think or it was 8,000. Oh, no, no, 8, I'm 000? sorry, 8,000 okay. is what uh, what Aegon had, I think. But whatever it is, it was just the Harrenhal garrison yeah. and that, you know. The Harrenhal garrison, the servants, all, all the retinue that, that Heron, Heron the Black had. But Old Town is what, 400, 500,000 people yeah. living in a city that Visenya is saying, go burn this city. And, and it's not just the city, too. You're, uh, you're wiping out an economic center, the, it, perhaps the economic center of Westeros at the time. It's a port city. It, it's, it you know, feeds from several rivers into the city itself. So you're, you have the, the ability to just kind of not just it, – it just feels like a very um, – disruptive bit of advice for Aenys himself. And and almost, and, and too, to kind of back up your guys' point, it almost seems like advice that Aenys would never take. Yeah. I mean, Visenya's been around this kid and this guy when he was a kid and when he was an adult, and she knows he's not going to fly on a dragon and burn but down. But she, she might have had a chance of convincing him to let her go do it, though, maybe. Yeah, he when he says, let me do it, you know, and, and yeah. True. True. Which he doesn't, of course, but... <laughs> And just to build on what uh, Beefish was saying, like doing it, Old Town is all of those things. But if if uh, if any of those Targaryens had gone and roasted the Starry Sept, whether it was Aegon or Maegor or Aenys, that's that's like burning down the uh, the Vatican. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's it's that's yeah. a whole or Mecca or something. Like that's a whole different level of atrocity. And right, you know, it you ha when you're a dragon lord, you have to decide what kind of ruler are you going to be. You could be an absolute authoritarian who just uses the boot to crush everyone and rule that way. And Magor tried to do that. But as you can see, it's very hard to hold power when no one can trust you and you have no allies. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, there's there's in, encapsulated in this moment between Innes and Visenya is the whole dynamic of a dragon lord ruler. Like, how much do you use the dragons? When do you let your enemies up from kneeling and show mercy? Like, how do you strike that balance? Aegon was successful at it, uh, but, you know, a lot of Targaryen kings were not. They didn't have that nuance. Yeah, they, they were either too aggressive or too passive, and they needed to be to be able to shift gears and do some. And yeah. isn't that the big question facing Daenerys? Like, yes. that's pretty much it. Like, we talked about these books giving context for the main story. This is Daenerys. Like, she's she can't just be the dragon all the time. She does have to plant some trees. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she does plant trees in Marine. And, and so, does? like, the, the, the yeah, she does. Literally. She plants new olive trees. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, there's uh, and there's also symbolism about weirwoods and dragons and stuff going on right there, planting mm -hmm. trees. But that's beside the point. Uh, the point is that you know Daenerys is going to have to decide when she comes to Westeros exactly how much fire and blood is appropriate. And she's already been concerned about that. Like, how will the Dothraki act in Westeros? She's been she's been thinking about this for a while. So it's one of the interesting things we have to see in the next book. So I want to, which some call some call Tiwow. Uh, a good uh, commenter, Acoustic Noise Machine, mentioned that as you were, Jeff, you made your point about Harrenhal versus Old Town. Another point in your favor there is that 
Everybody hated Heron for the most part. People don't hate Old Town. They don't hate the High Septon. They don't hate the High Towers. That's they don't true. hate the Citadel. You know, those were like relatively neutral or positively viewed institutions. Whereas Heron is just, everybody hated that guy. <laughs> he was one of those rule by authority and crushing people into their boot types that people would be gladly rid of. It's fascinating, too, that, you know, when Danny's going to face probably something very similar and that, you know, a common theory about what happens with Aegon in Winds and perhaps in Dream is that Aegon will come into alliance with the High Sparrow and the Faith Militant. And for all of their faults, and we can point out all of the misogyny that goes behind them and the fanaticism and the whole, you know, we should lead a crusade against those who are who don't follow the Faith of the Seven – they're very popular. You know, seemingly, they're they're the most unifying force in Westeros, in a feast for crows and a dance of dragons. And you can only imagine their influence expanding out in the winds of winter. So Danny is going to be faced with a similar choice: Do I burn these people, or do I try and find some common ground or some sort of peaceful solution to to their? They're probably going to be opposing her um, for a variety of reasons, which we don't have to get into here. But um, um, if they think she's it, the savior, is, of, if, if a whole nother religion is calling her their savior, that makes it a little harder for her to deal with this problem. But you're right. That's a, right. That's a whole nother tangent, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Aziz, you mentioned this when we were talking about uh, the Great Empire of the Dawn is like what happens when fanatical Reloris come to Westeros yeah. and meet fanatical, uh, you know, uh, sparrows. How's that going to go? That is bad. That is bad is how I think that will go to use a uh, very sophisticated term. You don't think they'll have a reasoned uh, theological sort of dialogue? Well, they'll or... just throw a big barbecue, probably. <laughs> 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 um, so let's skip ahead to Anis's death here because we want to cover. It'll be like it'll be like Twitter with actors. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. We want to cover. We want to cover starting with his death. Now earlier I talked about the possibility that Visenya was being more pragmatic about the Targaryen dynasty and how she thought that. Look, this guy can't do it. He just can't do the job. And maybe she has something to do with his death. We kind of already talked about that. We don't need to get back into that. But she doesn't even attend Aenys' funeral. She immediately goes to Pentos to, to retrieve her son. Now, that puts a, you know, makes this, if we, if we apply that to, to what we've just said, if she thought that Aenys was no good, well... What does that say about Aenys' descendants? She she obviously didn't think Aegon or Reyna or Viserys was, was capable either. But they were really young at the time, too. So that's maybe part of it as well. But still, she she didn't hesitate. She went straight for Magor and he came back and they did their thing. Which I think is pretty interesting how this all proceeded. It's very much in line with his personality and with hers. He's like, I'm king now. He walks up to, he goes to King's Landing with his dragon, and he's like, hey, I'm king, period. Anyone want to fight me? <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's really just like the most, you know, it's the alpha male challenge. <laughs> it's like, I'm king because I'm the strongest. And the faith is kind of clever. They're like, first of all, the faith being the, who they are and being zealots, they're like, well, of course we can beat this guy because, you know, God's on our side or the seven are on our side. And Magor probably wasn't prepared for this. He was prepared to fight one person. He's like, I'll fight anyone. And it's important that the Kingsguard wasn't with him because the Kingsguard are still on Dragonstone. You know, this funeral still happened and all that. And they flew here. Vagar and Valerian flew to King's Landing so the Kingsguard couldn't, you know, come as quickly. But what they may not have seen coming was the faith 
or the the warrior sons are like, okay, yeah, we accept your challenge. When Megor is one of that, he's like, yeah, all right, I'm gonna beat them, and they're I'm gonna be legitimized because everyone's gonna see that I fought a challenge that the gods participated in, and I won. But he maybe didn't anticipate them saying, okay, yeah, it's got to be a seven, a trial of seven. And that would yeah. explain why he wasn't, you know, he didn't already have six guys with him to, you know, he would have been ready for that. So he didn't see that coming. And that is, creates one of the more interesting scenes of the whole story because we actually get, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like a, a, a semi-narrative here for this little bit. Yeah, I'm sure I'm gonna I'm gonna just agree with Jeff preemptively and say this was a little bit of a tease. <laughs> it was a tease, though. It You're starts right. to it it starts to seem like something that's gonna be really awesome and sort of peters out kind of quickly. But <laughs> I, go ahead, go ahead, Jeff. I didn't mean to, didn't mean to take your point. No, no, no. So I I really I, as I was listening to this, I was I was really kind of enjoying this, and I was enjoying the kind of the the seven on seven battle that was being set up, and uh, you, you know I. I I read all the novels and it took took me probably about a year and a half or two years after I finished Dance with Dragons before I actually read The Hedge Knight. And when I read The Hedge Knight and I, you know, the seven on seven battle that that concludes that novella, I really love that. And I love the dynamic that George plays played with that in in um in, in the Hedge Knight. Um the the issue here is that as much as I, I, I think that George is was is great at writing these 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 set pieces with these you know really driving plot points and these really you know very deep character moments for for Dunk in, in the Hedge Knight, you can kind of see why George finds writing history a bit easier than writing narrative because he he get he sets all these points up. He sets up the, the seven coming up the hill and, and the, the selection of the seven champions from the Warrior Sons. And you have Magor and Dick Bean coming out there. And you're like, wow, this is really going to be something special and something really awesome. And then George kind of sums it up by saying, many great deeds were done. Yeah. And I kind of, at that point, I kind of just kind of laid back, sat back and looked up at the ceiling and I was like, George, come on, man. <laughs> Like, give us something a little bit more here I than what we're getting. It would have been easy, too. That's so amazing. That leads me to my point perfectly, which is uh, there's this line in there in this section, you know, he's talking about all these people that he that he was joined by, like Bernard Brown and this guy Lucifer Massey and all these cool names, like Guy or, Guy or Guy Lawson, who's, like, had, like, 40 half-digested pies spill out, they say. <laughs> and the line says, the names of the four Megor Chos are writ large in the history of Westeros. We've never heard of these guys. None of them. So, not writ that large. Not writ very large at all. And then it says many great deeds were done, but we don't need to talk no. about it. Yeah, but why? But, but you have such an opportunity to talk about like some really awesome stuff. Like you remember that. I know, why not? Line. Talk about that. Yeah, why just, if it's a great deed, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a show don't tell. Don't tell me that there was something that great happened. Demonstrate it. Write it out in the narrative. Why? Why? What did Dick Bean do in the fight? You know, what did Magor do in the fight itself? And and you do have pieces of that there, but you don't have that kind of depth and those character moments and the great things that really make me go, man, I love a song of ice and fire. And that's kind of as I was reading it, or I was rather listening to the audiobook. I went, it was that moment where I was like, God damn it, <laughs> come on, George! Like, I like you have so much opportunity here, and you just kind of let it go because many great deeds were done. You know, solves a writing issue that probably might have taken a few weeks to actually kind of detail out all of the great things that might have been done in the writing. Yeah, 
So, so moving, so moving, like given, uh, given that problem, whatever, there's still some pretty cool stuff to be gleaned from this. So one thing is that Megor fights a trial by combat versus warrior sons fighting for the crown. And we very well might see Gregor fighting a trial by seven against the faith (laughs) representing the crown in the next book. So that's a potential foreshadowing that we could have. Jeff brought up the hedge knight and the way that ended was with Baylor fighting, you know, a two on one and his brother hitting him in the head. That's how this one yep. ends. Megor hitting the head and, mm-hmm. but surviving instead. So, of and that's Baylor. actually what I was going to say next is that after the fight, there's some pretty cool stuff that happens. So Megor is knocked out for 27 days and he only awakens again when he, when uh, not Cerise Hightower, but his second wife, Haraway, Alice Haraway, mm-hmm returns from Essos with Taina of the Tower, who's, of course, a reputed witch and sorceress. And she seems, of all the people accused of being a sorceress, she seems like she might actually be a sorceress. <laughs> but in any case, she comes back. Megor wakes after 30 days and goes to the battlements, and everyone cheers him. And then he basically immediately jumps on Balerion, flies over to the Sept of Remembrance, and sets it on fire. <laughs> Although they at least use... Uh, enough preparation to have soldiers come and surround the building and kill anyone that tries to escape. So it was absolutely one of the most brutal things that he did. And this was kind of a turning point for him. Like when he came back from this concussion coma event or whatever it was, uh, you know, he, he meant he was just all the, if there was ever any mercy, it was gone. You know, any restraint, it seems to have been it's, gone. Is this, is this touches on the rage no. thing that we talked about, like the, the, how he handles defiance. Like he thought that he won that challenge. And so, hey, y'all bow to me now. I won. And they didn't. So he's like, all right, then. This, these are traitors. I'm burning them all. I think, yeah. it was a very, I think it's very simple. <laughs> we yeah. got a super chat from Maker Frey. In quotes, great podcasts were made. Next his next Westeros history podcast. Let's <laughs> yeah. we'll be a two minute that. episode, yeah. an intro, and then, yeah. this was a great episode. <laughs> <laughs> Go tell your friends how much you like this. <laughs> and then the history of Westeros podcast was in a coma for twenty seven days. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. In terms of all these uh these battles that we see with the the faith and whatnot, we mentioned some of the other names already, but there really are a lot of good names here. I think that's one of the things George does really well that they can be very evocative with very little. For instance, we've got Big John Hogg, yep. who okay. later mm-hmm. becomes Blind Jog John Hogg, who what he's he's referred to as that. I wish he was Big Blind John Hogg. <laughs> that's what I wanted his name to be later, but then he's he's no longer his bigness just, didn't matter. Or just I guess. BBJH. For yeah, short. something like that. Uh, but we also got Lord Rupert Falwell, the Fighting Fool. That's a good one. I just really like that name. Fighting Dick Bean fool. is still and the, the fool the is lead, their but... their sigil. Yeah. Dick yeah, Bean, yeah, yeah. None of them, you're right. None it's of them. The beat fighting fools. She can't take that guy seriously. <laughs> so hey, uh, Jerry, Jerry the Targaryen steamboat in the chat says, uh, "Magor's coma experience." He says it was like when Paul drank the water of life, except for evil and no realizations. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny. That is pretty funny. <laughs> um, mm. And uh, also, while I've got the mic here, uh, I will point out that someone in the chat pointed out a really nice bit of wordplay here. It was, uh, what's that guy's name? At the Drag something? The Dragon Demands? Uh, the, yeah, the Dragon Demands. So 
he was so Orius one hand has one hand, right? But if you read this paragraph, it says when Walter Will was delivered into his hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one. Very good. That's a good Same one. Right. I like it. It looks like, like it. we're moving on at a good pace. I wanted to get in something that we went past, which was the thing okay. about Reyna Targaryen. Um, I took note of the fact that she stayed at Casterly Rock with Aegon, and they have twins there, which is just too fitting to have twins at Casterly Rock. <laughs> uh, and in this section, we also... Oh, that is Yeah, funny. it's very funny to me. Uh, we also learn of Lord Lyman Land wife. I'm always interested in hearing new names, especially for like the major houses. So his wife's name was Jocasta, which obviously makes you think of <laughs> Joanna and things like that. We didn't yeah. know that before. But we also learned a description of Faircastle that we hadn't seen before that was very striking to me, given the many mentions of towers and prophecies and stuff like that. There, there was a description of Faircastle as having its, its tall white towers rising high above the sunset sea. It makes sense just to know that it's, these tall white towers is notable. Which is a big target for the Ironborn. It makes sense. <laughs> but they can see yeah, far their and towers all that. Can see. Yeah. And towers is a great defense against raids because it's hard yeah. to like, you know, get to the top of a tower. It takes time to, to take a tower. That was mm -hmm. a lot of tease. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hope we see Faircastle. That would be awesome to actually go be. there in the, in the future of the series. And it's sort of implied that Reyna has, you know, falls for this lord of... of of uh, Fair Isle. Oh yeah, yeah, more than more than affectionate to the Lord's son. Yeah, and yeah. she doesn't, you know, and she yeah. gets out of all this alive. So we can hope maybe she got to, <laughs> you know, retire with so him. So let's, let's actually let's actually mention that. So this is one of the character building uh, moments for Reyna when when Magor commands her to leave Faircastle and come and submit and marry him. She she leaves quickly so as not to bring the wrath of Magor down on Faircastle. Yeah. And she she goes there and does her duty and does what she has to do. So I, I just you know she's she's going to marry the killer of her husband, mm -hmm. and she does that and holds it together for a while afterwards. And that's that's pretty like that's pretty horrific and also just impressive from a personal strength kind of point. Yeah, and when she shows up at her wedding, her daughters are there who she had sent into hiding, and Tiana's like, "You thought you could hide them from me," <laughs> which is a peculiar thing to say because. They were hiding, but Nerea is the heir. Magor had named her as the heir, so that's kind of important. But meanwhile, Aegon and Viserys are still out there, <laughs> and they have, you know, and and Alysanne is with Jaehaerys, and they may have had Vermithor and Quicksilver by this. I'm sorry, Silverwing yeah. by this point, which is like, well, you found these two daughters who were hiding without dragons, but what about? These two more prominent people that had dragons, I can kind of assume that they just left Westeros and then came back or something, because that would... Otherwise, it's like, there's just nowhere they could hide. They have big-ass dragons, you know? So, mm -hmm. anyway. <laughs> so after the trial by combat, um, you know, Magor wins, and while he's unconscious, Visenya has the Kingsguard, you know, takes control of the Kingsguard and has them gather the Loyalists and starts, you know building his regime while he's unconscious. And we talked about the destroying this, the Sept, and this is just a pattern for Magor. He just too quickly goes to the, ah, you're defying me, I'm going to kill you thing. He kills three Grand Maesters. He, you know, which by the way, I guess the North may have had begrudging respect for a man who does his own executions, but <laughs> <laughs> other than that, they wouldn't have much to say positively about him. And... 
you know, which the three grand killing the three grand maesters may loom large later when you know Magor is found dead. That you know, I would I, I suspect the Citadel potentially being involved because of that. And this is all you know. Visenya sets up this kind of rule by brutality that uh, that Magor is is really cool with because that's his strength. But she doesn't last much longer. She only lasts his his reign is six years long, and she dies in his second year. So this is all really important. Um, what did you guys have to say about? this moment. I think this is a pretty key moment. I mean, when you have Megor as a total mama's boy, like losing that mama, like, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's bad news for, for him. And it's bad news for Westeros too. Um, I think that, that Megor relied on her for so much of the administrative and also of kind of the knowledge base that she brought. And that kind of also direct connection to Aegon the Conqueror too. Um, losing her was a huge blow for Magor, and it—I I don't want to say it's um, necessarily you can draw a, a, a bright line between Visenya's death and the reign of terror that follows with Magor, but I think that you can see Magor getting exponentially worse after Visenya dies. Even though Visenya is not a great person, right? She does a whole lot of bad things herself, and she advises. Aenys and Magor to do violent things that she's might be the tether or the reins that's keeping Magor in place. But afterwards, Magor is off the chain and you see Westeros kind of descend into this kind of reign of terror, Stalinist type situation where, you know, high lords and advisors are dying by the droves. Wives are dying as well. And it's, it's, it's tragic for for Magor um, to have to have all that happen. So, yeah, Visenya was more, seemed to be more about brutality for a reason. You know, like she she tended she was fine with brutality. She encouraged it a lot, but it usually had a purpose. Magor is more right. about just he's just brutal. He <laughs> just day in day out. Yeah, it's just part of his day. You know, oh, I have breakfast, cut someone's heart out. You know. <laughs> I felt bad yeah, for Magor. Yeah, there are so many scenes. You feel bad for Magor? Yeah, yeah, I do feel bad for him. Jeff brought it up just there. I wanted to say something about that, that for a number of reasons, but I, I kind of thought after this I might feel less bad for him now that I'd seen a lot more, and in some ways I did. But I, we also saw more of Visenya raising him and being, you know, it seems very cold, and that can have a lot of ramifications for how some, I mean, I don't think it's going to lead someone to be quite as rage-filled and, you know, bloody as he is. So, that's a good point. Remember that, that joke about... Aegon gave Visenya the in char charge of building the Red Keep so he could yeah. be away from her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That that's pretty telling. I might you know if Magor couldn't get away from her, that's his mother. You know. <laughs> so I I actually thought about this a little bit, and what I think that George does when he takes his most monstrous characters, like Ramsay, uh, for example, he thinks about what makes a monster. How does a person get the, there are these sadistic, cruel, evil people or sociopathic people who are just power hungry, don't care who they crush. These people exist, but they don't just come from nowhere. And that's that's one of the things that George is fascinated with, like Ramsey's origin story, where his mother is like nursing a grudge and Roose Bolton basically killed, you know, killed the the woman's husband and then left her with Ramsey as a, as a babe in the womb. It's like, that's how that happens. So you look at Gregor, yeah. He's got these migraines and we can imagine there might be other bad parenting involved. And when you look at Magor and Joffrey, it's the same thing. Like these are monstrous characters. There's very little to redeem them, 
but they're not they're not two dimensional either. Like George has he understands this macabre, disturbed psychology and goes to even in a little bit of space, he can sort of imply how these monsters are made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, and I think we have a, a comment here from a Don of Ice and Fire. Hey, how's it going, Don Willie? He says, Aegon, great king, lousy husband, worse father. I, I, that's, you know, it's a, it's a simplistic way of putting it, but I think I agree with that sentiment that he was a bad father and he was a good, he was one of the better Targaryen kings, although being a bad father is an argument for him being a bad, is, you know, is not a feather in his cap for that because his, he, he didn't, he didn't handle, you know, the succession didn't go so well. Yeah, that's, and that's part partly of being on him. a good king. Yeah. yeah, so, but during his reign, things were peaceful, so he definitely gets a lot of credit for that um, for the most part. So that, I think that's a, that's a pretty good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, the immediate aftermath of Visenya's death had a lot of domino effects to it. A lot of um, a lot of things happened because Alyssa Valerian sneaks off with Dark Sister, and now that's really big because Mager was already paranoid and suspicious, and Visenya probably was too. And so they kept a close eye on Viserys, who is Aegon's younger brother and Aenys's second son, and made you know he made him uh, Magor made Viserys his squire. Magor ordered the Kingsguard to always watch Viserys, which is probably why he couldn't escape and why Alyssa could. And taking Dark Sister with is interesting, but it also had a big consequence. You know, once he found out she was gone, Magor's reaction was predictably brutal, but maybe even more brutal than even others would have suspected. I don't think Visenya would have been down for what Magor did here. I think this is an example of something that Magor is doing this on his own that he would have been counseled against doing and he tortured the series to death. That's yeah, Kinslay. It's, it's very clearly spelled out. Like It's like when Magor gave the order, you know, the knights said, well, what if he may not know? And then it's like, then let him die. Yeah, it's real So bad. it's very clear. Magor's like, fuck him then, you know, like just kill him if he doesn't know. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't think Visenya would, I think Visenya has more savvy than that. You know, she was willing to be brutal, but I don't know that she would have done this. Um, it just, and I think it really backfired. You know, it didn't, it, it, everybody, because Viserys was popular. He Visenya would have realized that much too. And kind of like what you were just saying, this cruelty stops making any sense at this point. Like there's no strategic point behind it. Now. Yeah. And, it's just punishment. It's just punishment for defiance. It's his anger. And and it's it's the defiant, it, and it's disproportionate. The defiance is not his defiance. Like Viserys didn't run off. <laughs> he didn't do the bad thing. And he, uh, and, and I think if you think about it from the Kingsguard point of view, uh, as we get to the end of this, remember that the Kingsguard are one of the suggestions for Magor being killed. And look at what he was making them do. Viserys, again, was popular. He was well-liked. He was a young, popular squire that was a kind of... You know, promising a, a Promising lad, lad exactly. Okay. So imagine the King's Guard that probably liked him. And then they were forced to kill him and torture him and see this him treated this way. And, of course, this is just par for the course, working for Magor. Certainly some of his King's Guard were probably of a mind like him, brutal like he was. But remember who formed the King's Guard. We talked about this earlier. Visenya formed this King's Guard. It was her idea and without her guidance, once the Kingsguard, you know, uh, once she's maybe not approving who's in the Kingsguard or not, maybe that starts to spell, uh, you know, spell Magor's doom a little bit when, when someone's not keeping an eye on who's getting into the Kingsguard. I mean, it, it, it does bring up a point that comes in the main series, too, about the conflict between duty and honor and morality, right? I mean, you have characters like Barristan Selmy in the Kingsguard who witnesses all of these terrible things that Aerys Targaryen does 
but he doesn't do anything because he's honor bound to obey the king and to keep his commands. And the same thing kind of comes here where you have Magor, who's the king, and you, and it is still being established, Kingsguard, at least some of the principles, I'm assuming. And we don't, and, and maybe you guys can talk a little bit more about that, about what things were established during the reigns of Aenys and Magor. But some of the things are probably still being established, but these people have to obey a tyrant, a, obey a psychopath in killing a kid. And that has to be, um, something that, you know, most of us who are not, in that kind of medieval mindset would kind of you know shrink from we, you would hope at least right but 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 these guys didn't they 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 went through with it even though they might have liked this kid and i think that's a great kind of theme that martin is talking about here about the the conflict between honor and morality and how we're we're supposed to look at these guys and go like they're in an impossible situation but there is a right answer even if they're in an impossible situation yeah Good stuff. I totally agree. Seconded. I see here that we had a slight moment of being frozen, uh, or it went out for less than a minute. And from drunk ASYF history, I screen printed Blackfish's face for prosperity. <laughs> whatever, whatever your face was on. And, and by the way, drunk ASYF, that's posterity, not prosperity. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I'm pretty sure that she thinks it'll bring them prosperity. <laughs> I don't. Think I think so. so. I think that if she shared that image around, she could make a lot of money. <laughs> I really do. So, I, I got your back, Chloe. Assuming that's Chloe. I don't know. It's Chloe. It could be anyone. It's that's Chloe. Okay. It's obviously Chloe. <laughs> obviously. Obviously, apparently. <laughs> These are the kind of fun people that you meet by coming to the conventions. By the way. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so moving on, uh, in the next year, the Red Keep finishes up, and Magor is obsessed with this place. Now, we know Aegon himself started the Red Keep, uh, but interestingly, uh, you know, we always knew that Magor had a lot to do with the secret passages that were built into it, but the Sons of the Dragon almost makes it sound like that was entirely on him, that he that Aegon maybe didn't plan for that or plan for very little of that. And it was, it was Magor that expanded that part of the design and part of why he was so wrapped up in this. Like he was really obsessed with this, this building of the Red Keep. And we all know what happened. This is a story that we've known since the earliest Song of Ice and Fire. When he finished the building of the Red Keep, he feasted the builders and then just... And that's how he painted it red. Oh, <laughs> Oh, oh man, over the top, brutal here. Just get, gives them a party and then has them all killed. And yes, paints the walls with their blood. Yes, God, that that. He was also a painter. He was a, a very good speaker and a painter and a very artistic guy. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> and at around the same time, and he's just somehow, despite Magor being this kind of guy, he was also a. a into building like he, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy uh, doesn't seem like the kind of mo for a brutal dude but he's the one who starts the dragon pit and he and david you had some uh, interesting takes on on this about the, the where it was built you know the site of it which was it used to be the site of remembrance which was dedicated to rainies yeah but... so a, a a teensy teensy drop of symbolism for our very like sort of grounded podcast here <laughs> this is by way of previewing my next podcast so <laughs> wait (laughs) (laughs) thanks thanks uh so everybody knows that i make a lot of hay out of the carthian myth about one day there was a second moon in the sky and this moon wandered too close to the sun it cracked and the dragons poured forth and those dragons are really me 
Now, the thing is, if we had two moons, I tend to think that they were probably moons of ice and fire because everything else is ice and fire in the series. And so I've uh, found the hill of Rainies and Visenya to be like models of the two moons. So if you look at the hill of Rainies, the first thing that happens is we have a sept that gets burnt by dragon fire. Then they build the dragon pit. And dragon pit also gets burnt and collapsed with dragon fire. And specifically, the dragon pit has a stone dome and it cracks when one of the dragons flies up and hits its head on the roof of the dome. Dreamfire. Like yeah. a dragon trying to hatch out, dreamfire, yeah. right? Trying to hatch out of an egg. And there's a bunch more. Obviously, you know how my stuff goes. I'll show like 10 different examples of symbolism and all that that sort of backs it up. But what's cool is uh, basically my next podcast is going to be all about Visenya and uh, Rainies and Aegon and their hills and their dragons from a symbolism point of view. So sure. if you want, if you're into the whole topic of, of these three, then uh, I'll be coming at it from a different angle next time. Right mm -hmm. I am down. I am down. So ar around go. the same time is when we have Tiana as Soul Queen. This is when the Black Brides haven't happened yet. He hasn't had his mass ceremony. And uh, Cerise is, I believe Cerise is dead by this point. If not, it doesn't matter. She never has kids anyway. I believe she she must be dead if, if this is Tiana as Soul it's Queen. the soul value of a woman, huh? <laughs> <laughs> to Megor, apparently. <laughs> and um, so then he goes on campaign the next year. This is, and he goes back in the field, and it's it doesn't seem like he uses Balerion a whole lot for this. It's like he kind of wants to do it more hand, you know, he wants to get down and fight people hand to hand or something. I don't know. But this is when we get into the whole bit about him, and we have the whole incident with him this is we're backing up a little bit here because Visenya was still alive when some of this started and we talk about when he comes to to finally comes to a head with the faith and they're basically calling for him to be done and the high tower's like wait a minute I, we're not necessarily on board with this <laughs> here he comes with his dragon and Visenya's coming with her dragon and that's when the high septon mysteriously dies over yeah there's a bunch of rumors about what happens here i i think the most convincing to me is morgan hightower he's seen leaving his cha his chambers he's the only warrior's son pardoned and this would just be in conjunction with martin hightower to like that save their asses it's just yeah. i think it's damning but we'll mention the other possibilities because even if they didn't kill him it still tells us a little bit about those characters it's interesting yeah, um, there's the, the other possibility, yeah, were, were Patrice Hightower, so another Hightower who is known as a reputed witch, uh, and we get these references to Hightowers and sorcery alluded to in other places as well, including in the main series. So it's notable to me. I mean, it makes sense for them to theorize that this family that lives up way up high in this tower with maybe some ancient kind of information that they might have some sorceress leanings even if they actually don't yeah but we also get yeah. the archmaesters of the citadel uh in a thing that makes you think of the death of dragons it makes you think of you know things like that uh they suggest the dark arts an assassin and a poison scroll a poison scroll that's a new pretty one pretty out there <laughs> but interesting yeah. And uh, Visenya herself, who's also been referred to as a sorceress, and I think all of those are not very convincing. There's a lot of mentions of witches in this story. There's Patrice, there's Visenya, there's Tiana, uh, Tiana and there, and, there's... And Poxy Jane Poor is, is burned Yeah, you're right, Poxy Jane Poor. And we get a double reference to Melisandre here. Because, well, not a double reference, but like a couple of hints about Melisandre. There's some, one of the theories is that maybe it was a shadow baby that killed uh, the High Septon. That's you know, maybe a little a little bit out of left field, but certainly possible. Because with all this talk of sorcery and, and things like that. But one thing that's interesting, too, is that 
we hear that the high tower that old town was preparing for the dragons so if if they were if the if if house high tower was in on killing the high septon they totally went through the motions because they started arming the the walls you know they started getting weapons out and getting ready and the the warrior's son surrounded the high septon or his his building and then you hear and then we get this cool reference of the high tower burning green Mm-hmm. which is not out of nowhere because and this is why it's a reference to Melisandre because Melisandre talks about having powders to change the color of fire and she specifically mentions green as one of those colors. So this is not wildfire. This is more, I mean, it could be, but it's mo- more likely this powder, this some sort of chemical reaction to make it green. And that is, you know, why it's kind of a double reference to Melisandre potentially. And uh, so that's kind of cool. Um, and apparently this is how they call the banners. Yeah. <laughs> apparently this is how they call their banners. Like they used to, because he said it, it burned green as they called their banners. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's like the high tower burns green and that means summon, you know, call the, call the troops. So that's kind of cool. Cool way to do it. There's no, no one else can do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, they can really only, only uh, declare themselves for a couple of different things with that method. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> green, red. <laughs> yeah, what are some of the other colors? Mel Center mentions black and silver, I think. Oh, you can get, fire get, you can get fires well. of that. So they have, I guess, four ways they can go. <laughs> <laughs> the following year is when we get the mass marriage ceremony, which is when Megor is really just, he's just really off the rails at this point. <laughs> just, what is he doing here? Yeah, what? he gets a bunch of suggestions here. I think one of the most notable to me was uh, Clarice Dane, Lady of Starfall, which gives us another Dane name, but really not one that I feel fits the Danes. I'm, I'm honestly a little disappointed in Clarice uh, Clarice Dane. is kind of... I don't know. We haven't seen that name anywhere yeah, in the Twilight Empire. I'm not a big fan of it, but at least we have another Dane name. True that. And the idea that they could detach Dorn or Starfall from oh, yeah. Dorn that way. And that is they cared. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, Clarice. I don't think Clarice was going to agree to that. Maybe they just were optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they get some other suggestions too, obviously. Like Lord Valerian suggests uh, Reyna. Which apparently he accepts. He, he takes that one. <laughs> but the, not the, just the hand Celtigar, he suggests Magor marry some of his daughters, but he doesn't take him up on that. And then we get Eleanor Costane is one of the brides that he t- ends up taking because she's proven fertile. That's why he chooses all she had like brides proven 12 fertile. Twelve children. She had a bunch of kids. Like but I-, I wanted to point out a little bit of a meta thing here is that she's described in the text as being red haired uh, very distinctly because I've been looking out- I've been on lookout for red haired characters for future cosplay or something. And the World of Ice and Fire art has her with some pretty blonde-looking hair. Like, it's pretty distinctly blonde, which to me says something about... I'm always wondering how much guidance George gave the artists of the World of Ice and Fire before they made their art, all the art that was new. And it tells me something about it that he didn't tell her that or didn't say anything. Yeah. I don't know. So, during... That's, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And um, at this point is when... Magor finally declares his heir as Erea. Like, he was expecting to have a kid and was like, oh, I'll have my own. But he, he's also expecting to have at least an heir out of all these multiple brides. And two of them get pregnant. And so it looks pretty good for him. But then we get this incident with Tiana. And, yeah. Beefish, why don't you uh, take us away on this bit? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Real quick. Okay. I just got a suggest to Ash. Uh-huh. Cosplay. 
would be the Red Widow with her strawberry blonde blade. Yes, yes, that is why I started looking into it, actually. I, I wanted to do her, but I felt I was uncomfortable with the fact that I am not short, freckled, or have green eyes. So I felt that I could cover the second two, but the short thing, it just feels wrong to have her be five foot eight and not really, really short. So, and that's a digression, true but enough, enough. you can walk I, around on your knees. Carry on, carry on. Yeah, you would like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I could. Uh, no, I, the, the, everyone suggests I just need to find a really tall dunk or something. But uh, it, it's a possibility at Ice and Fire Con 2018. Well, have you done have you done Melisandre before? Everyone or? tells me that. I just want to do a character that I like, that I, I, I want to be. I don't really want to be a, a red witch. Um, I, I considered young Elena Redwine because the Redwines have red hair. But again, that's probably young too much of a digression. But Queen of Florence, yeah, yeah, young Queen of Florence would be awesome, be cool. and I, they definitely she would have red hair. I think so. It, I yeah. also, my, I just want to say my uh, main choice is uh, Danelle Lothston because she wears that awesome black armor. And she's got the red oh, hair. Yes. But like getting armor made is so expensive and hard. And I, it, again, this has gone on too long. But suffice it to say, I have considered no. it. And I really am Shea, torn. I, speaking yeah. for the chat, I can tell you the people yeah. want more Shea, more red hair, yeah. and more cosplay. So. <laughs> yeah. Ice and Con. I, I will do it. Means, uh, I better say some other people doing awesome cosplays there. I hope to see lots of you at Ice and Fire Con. <laughs> but, uh, anyways. That'd be cool. Uh, so carry on, B. Yeah. Oh, yes. Take tell us about Tiana's betrayal. Or so-called uh, betrayal. So-called betrayal. So Tiana ends up, um, was it that Megor has impregnated two of his wives, Ellis and Eleanor? Yeah. And he's all excited about it because he finally has the potential for two heirs, right? You know, you have a, a, two chances in order to, to produce an heir for the realm. And what happens is that the children are stillborn or they come out born similar to how... Rego was born in in Daenerys um, at the end of Daenerys, Daenerys arc from from Game of Thrones, with wings and kind of misshapen and all sorts of horrible things, uh, horrible appearance, and they're all dead. Um, so the suspicion falls eventually on uh, Tyana, and, and I believe there's someone else that's implicated first, right? That, am I am I wrong about um, that? Um, I forget. Hmm. Alice was you, cheating. I think the Alice thing. I don't, I'm not the sure. The Alice Haraway thing is is not directly connected. I no, think. I have it connected here, so I, I guess I can say my thing real quick. Uh, sure, go for which it. Which is in terms of whether or not Tiana, you know, would have done this maliciously or just maybe to save herself from getting tortured more, or it was accurate. It's a few points on either side to me. Uh, one, it's kind of implied that she's close to Alice multiple times enough to share a wedding night and a bed. And so I originally leaned towards no with that. But then we have, I think, something kind of damning there, which is that Tiana is the one to declare Alice to be cheating on the king um, in the attempt to have a child, which by the side is total shades of Anne Boleyn here, except times 10, because she, yeah. like, 32 men are killed because of this, plus the entire it's Haraway absurd. family. It's absurd and tiana does it's the that. most most horrific thing in the whole so, story so, i think but go yeah, ahead yeah maybe so it's pretty close I, I would say that and i don't know the reigns of castamere or something like that but uh mm, yeah. besides that I, I the fact that tiana was willing to do this said something to me that they weren't that close and that or that she was trying to save herself or they had some you know that they were on the outs with one another so i think it's possible for her to actually have poisoned them but i don't think it's necessary i think that magor himself was enough for these children to be born 
abominations. I, I just don't think there's a reason for us to, to say it is true. Yeah, and it's a weird result, too. Like, why would they come out like this? Why wouldn't yeah. they just die? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, why, why would they come out like all that? weird yeah. like dragon? It's, yeah, because you're right. The, the evidence is that they're coming out dragony, not mm-hmm. that they're coming out poisoned, you know? I, I, you know, I think there's been some speculation because it, it happens in, in, in at the start of the Dance of the Dragons, too, where Rhaenyra's child comes out deformed with, with dragon wings. No right? heart. It happens with yeah. and no heart. And it happens with Rago, too. And some people have thought that, you know, this is evidence of the maesters are trying to kill or, or deform some of these children sort of sort of thing. And, and I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not necessarily buying into that. But I do see that there is perhaps maybe a little bit of evidence for that. But getting back to, to Tiana, um, she ends up being fingered as the culprit for killing the, the children, deforming the children. Um, the interesting thing about her is that she immediately admits to to doing it. She immediately says, I did it. You know, I did it. You know, just kill me right now. And what it brought to my mind was that scene from A Dance with Dragons from one of Ash's where you have the uh, the Peasbury men who are accused of cannibalism by um, uh, some of the some of, Stan- of, other, of Stannis' soldiers. And the one sergeant in the group starts, you know, insulting Relore and saying, you know, you know, R'hllor is, is false and I piss on R'hllor and all these types of things. And he ensures himself a quick death and he avoids this, you know, being burned to death, which is what happens to the other two guys in, in the party itself. So I was wondering two things. One, whether Tyana was actually responsible. And secondly, whether if she was or wasn't, whether she knew what the result was going to be either way. She knew that Magor was going to have her killed and possibly tortured to death is, you know, a method that Magor had used over and over and over again during his reign. So I was curious if she was just admitting to it to get it out of the way because there was no way to save herself, regardless if she was innocent or if she was guilty. I think you're totally right. I think she admitted it because there was no way to convince Magor otherwise. She'd lived with, she knows Magor really well. She's his master of whispers and she had sent a ton of people to the chopping block based on his paranoia. So she knows how his paranoia works. And once it's turned on, I don't think there's anything that can stop it. It's like a runaway train. And she probably was like, yeah, I don't want to be tortured to death. This is my, this is the lesser of two evils for me. But yeah, you wonder how he got the idea in the first place that she did it. You know, how did it, something must have happened to make Magor suspect her. It's kind of an inadvertently noble thing to do, really, when you think about it. She puts all the blame on herself, and <laughs> off of Magor, and off of these women. I don't, I don't think she meant that, but yeah. it is actually. That's kind of true. Yeah. I think the main, the main piece of evidence here is the simple fact that we have so many other Targaryen lizard babies. Yes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense that it was poison. I agree. Um, we have so many other though, cases. And then the other thing I'll, I'll notice that when he kills, when he kills her, Tyena, he cuts her heart out with black fire, and that is. Azora High Nissanissa symbolism. Oh, yes. right on. Good catch. Good catch. Magor is Azora High. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, Magor is Azora High. You heard it here first. That's what Helmel says. Well, what I'm saying is that Azora High's character is part Magor, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Lightbringer's yeah. nature is part Black. It's what you said first. <laughs> yep. He was he was he was Lucifer means Lightbringer himself. No, he was Azora High. <laughs> Magor Ahai. Yeah. Um, we missed our chance. He was born uh, 300 years too early. Yeah, that's what happened. So one of the things that really matters here is that Westeros is super superstitious. Super superstitious. And so when Magor's children all come out horrible 
And he was already a kinslayer because of Viserys and was there others? But at least Viserys. And uh, because of how he's handled the faith and he's got the high septum. Aegon. Oh yeah, yeah Aegon. Aegon. He killed. Right, he's already had his war with Aegon at this point. That's right. And, uh, and beaten him <clears throat> and killed him. And Poor Quicksilver. Poor Quicksilver, yeah. We, knew, we barely knew ye. And, barely knew ye. And yeah, we've hardly even talked about the dragons here, but that's uh, we'll have to save that for another time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he's he, he's he's killed these people already, and he's so he's already a kinslayer. He's already engaged in incest. He's already been decried and you know called an abomination by the high the high septon, multiple high septons, I guess at this point. And now he, he the gods are against him because they're giving him these abomination children. So that seems to have been you know, and that and Magor himself is taking this personally. You know, he already one of the few times we see him get like emotional in a non angry way is when his mother dies and when his children are born. And his, his quote-unquote children, this is, you know, it's hard to call them that. But And I, th- I thought it was really interesting, if I could just jump in here real sure. quick, that it was these two lizard babies that was the final straw. That's when everybody really deserted him, is when he had these two babies. And it's like, it's one thing to be cruel and evil and awful, but if the gods are, if you're cursed of the gods, then nobody wants anything to do with you. That was like, that shattered... It shattered the image of his power, essentially. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's, it, not all his might and rage and, and badassness couldn't. Is, is no way you can overcome this. This is this is the curse of the gods. This is the curse of Harrenhal. That's the kind of things that may not have anything to do with the gods at all, but the people are going to perceive it as such, and that's yeah. That's like, what like you said, the High Septons have been calling him an abomination for like a decade, and now he's proving them right. Yes, by having these proving them babies. right. That's so true. And so, yeah, so everyone just takes off. And we get almost a repeat of when uh, Alyssa escapes, which is Reyna escaping. And instead of stealing Dark Sister, she steals Blackfire. And she takes two Kingsguard with her and Area, who's the heir at this point. And the two Kingsguard coming with is very interesting because we talked earlier about how the Magor may have been alienating the Kingsguard with his brutality. And this one Kingsguard, Owen Bush is found dead in a brothel with his member in his mouth, which is obviously pretty savage. <laughs> so uh, I wonder, so Owen Bush probably wasn't one of the ones they could count on to, to you know, leave Magor. Um, and maybe these other four Kingsguard also were not, you know, ones they could trust. But someone kills Magor next year. Because, I, I, again, we n- none of us seem to be big on the suicide idea. Am I right in saying that? Okay, so- I used to be. Not okay. now. Yeah. Definitely not now. He would have to, like, slit his wrist, not bleed out immediately, and, like, pierce his own, you know, ne- like, that's crazy. It's, it's I guess, technically possible to kill yourself that way. Yeah. And it plus, is. And plus, doesn't it but, seem more likely that he would go out, like, fighting? Like, he would get yeah, on Valerian and yeah. just go Yeah, so I, I, I have to say, it is still possible to kill yourself that way, but it's pretty damning. It's a pretty weird way to kill yourself to, like, pierce your, like, all of these different regions. Yeah, it's it seems I'm, odd. Yeah. What do you guys think? Well, it's, it's, it's curious that if Magor committed suicide, and, and here's the thing, people that might be suicidal are, are not necessarily like they are an extended period of, of depression and they're moping around and things like that. It could be something that's just like a sudden impulse to do something like that. And But for Magor, Magor is planning his strategy to deal with Jaehaerys and Robar Baratheon and the Stormlander army that's assembled to come and take him down in the mere hours before his death. So it seems not totally out of character given the things I said before, but it does seem a bit 
like that he had a will to live given that he was assembling this kind of war council in order to defend himself and defend his claim to the throne. I just want to share this this quote from the chat. He was such a built dude, he just went nuts and killed the heck out of himself. <laughs> I just like the heck that they did the heck out of from himself. San Rixian. Just that. <laughs> Not to interrupt, but yeah, okay. That's a good point, though, Jeff. You're right. He was just hours before, he was planning what to do, and then he turns up dead. Yeah, yeah that doesn't point to someone who was suicidal. Although he could still be have, have emotional swings. He killed but. one of the guys in the planning room and mounted his head on a pike. Like, that does not sound like a guy who's given up. Yeah, it really doesn't. So here's, here's what I noticed is a lot of things kind of all happen at the same time. Like, over near, at Storm's End, the Baratheons helped Jaehaerys and Alessand declare themselves king or whatever. And then at the same time, Reyna jumps on a dragon, takes Blackfire... And balls out with two Kingsguard. And then that same night, Megor is suspiciously killed. So it seems like there was probably coordination between all of those people. And there was, you know, there's there's some more story there to be had. And I also think we need to take a moment for Reyna. Because her um, when her husband, Aegon, went first... Um, when Okay, so when Aenys sent uh, Megor into exile... He asked for Balerion, or he asked for Blackfire. He said, "You know, give me Blackfire back." And Magor was like, "Yeah, your your grace is welcome to try to take it out of my hands, right?" Well, ultimately, ultimately, Reyna does take it out of his hands and makes off with it in the middle of the night. So I just felt that was like a fitting sort of bow on a present. Nice, day. yeah, Reyna does it. <laughs> some some poetic justice gets, there. Gets her, gets her father's revenge, <laughs> revenge for her father, however you want to put it. Because she literally, it said, stolen from his scabbard. Yeah. So you get the image of, like, Megor sleeping, drunk maybe, and, like, Raina's all, shh, like, see you later. I mean, she, they're, they're married, so, you know, she would have, re- she was, have reason to be in his room at night, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. And she's, she's been living with this monster for, like, a year or two years, and she's hated his guts every second of every day. And she's escaping on the way out. She doesn't have to grab the sword, but she grabs the sword. She does. And it's just, like, an extra... Kind of f you. Yeah, it's, so I thought that it's was awesome. Cool. All she had to do was leave. She did not have to take the sword with her, but she's like, "I'm taking the sword too." So, <laughs> that's, that's pretty. Epic. Maybe she knew that how much that, that would hurt did. him. Maybe she understood that not only is a symbol of power and a good thing to give to to Jaehaerys, that it would you know, mm-hmm. but it would also just really bother Megor. Just really like, damn it, you know, or really hurt him or his pride or yeah. Yep. Anyway, it felt personal. Okay. Well, I think. Yeah. I think with the death of Magor is a pretty good place to stop. We're closing in on uh, three, three hours. hours and that's, that's uh, all. We Two of hours, course forty six <laughs> minutes, and you said you didn't think we'd get close to three hours. Well, uh, yeah, I, I thought it would <laughs> I go thought three hours. I didn't think we. Did I say that? I thought yeah. I said we wouldn't get to three hours. Yeah, you did. Okay. Well, anyway, I didn't mean because to say that. I figured we'd half get close. Roll, which is exactly <laughs> accurate you know, where it was. Um. So. Oh, so let me make one little last point. Sure. Um, that I don't want to get lost because we've been talking about things in this book that foreshadow stuff for the main series. One of the things that really stood out to me was only one sentence. But it was at a certain time when Visenya and Megor were both on their dragons and they decided to bring the Reach to heal. Yeah. And Visenya burned five different castles in the Reach in one night. And we've never been shown that that level of destruction is possible with a dragon. And the fact that we were shown that kind of tells me, like, this is something that can that Daenerys can choose to do if she wants to. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. You know? 
Um, let's let's get sign-offs from everybody here. I want to thank everyone for showing up today. Thank you for participating in the live chat. It looks like we kept it around 200 most of the time. That's a good number. And appreciate you all coming and uh, hitting the like button and participating with us and interacting with us all. And uh, big thanks to our guests. Thanks very much for coming on today, Brendan B. Fish. Thanks, guys, for having me. It was a lot of fun, even though it was not my favorite um, thing that that that's it. It's it's another three years till you come back, Jeff. It's another three years with that uh, comment. I'm banned. I have Jeff, I am officially banned from History West. Only for three years. No. Tell everyone where to find <laughs> your work, your uh, your your writing, and your of course your very big presence on Twitter. That's uh, that's the best place to interact with Mr. B Fish. Uh, you can find me at Brendan B Fish at Brendan B Fish. I'm on. Uh, I've, I have a blog at Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire WordPress com, and you can also find me lurking over on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash asoiaf. So find me there. Excellent, excellent. And LML, please do your spiel as well. Well, first, let me uh, let me just shout out Beefish a little further because he's if you are hungry for the the winds of winter, and you haven't read uh, Blood of the Conqueror, that's what the title's right. The series Blood of the Conqueror. Yes. Okay, so this is basically all about what we know from the end of A Dance with Dragons and the sample chapters of Tiwau about what's going to happen when Fagon and company land in Westeros. And it is fascinating. It's a 10-part series. Uh, most of them are audio available, too. Uh, so you can listen to B-Fish read it to you. But I just, anybody who hasn't read that. You can't I get enough of my like, voice. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I definitely agree. Recommend that. I second that yep. recommendation. Um, Jeff has also done great work on keeping track of what we know about Winds of Winter in general, not just writing his takes on it, but just the basics of what we know from George, like what chapters have been released early, what's been read at conventions, you know, maybe what we can expect, like news about what we've heard about writing and editing, things like that. Jeff is always on top of that. So that's a, that by itself is valuable. But there's more to Jeff than just that. <laughs> there's, I'm, 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 I'm an onion. There's layers. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, in any case, yeah, that's just sort of standard issues. It'll set you up for uh, for the winds of winter, much in the same way that some of the writings of the battles of ice and fire and some of the podcasts that you guys and Radio Westeros have done on the Battles of Ice and Fire, sort of just kind of prepare everyone for the next book. So I'll sort of put it in that category. Cool. And uh, now your turn. You can find my my stuff is at LucifermeansLightbringer.com. I have a Patreon and a YouTube page. Basically, I've got a podcast series that's mirrored in essays, so you can read or listen as you prefer. It's mostly talking about uh, the very exciting symbolism and metaphor and archetypes and solving some of the deep mysteries and what caused the long night and what it means to be a Zora High Reborn and what all the meteor swords are about. And right now I'm doing a series about the others. We're talking about the symbolism of the others, which is pretty fun. So cool. come check it out and I'll leave you at that. And if I could plug your work, since you already plugged mine, for you guys that are looking for an entry, call it entry level stuff in, in LML stuff, check out the Corn King. The first part of that series was something that kind of blew my mind about some of the parallels between Cold Hands and Jon Snow the winds of winter so definitely check that out and check out the rest of it it has, well it has nothing to too. do with the corn code <laughs> just in case anyone yeah. wondering. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, good disclaimer that is called that series is called sacred order of green zombies and you can listen to it it doesn't have really any mythical astronomy and it. it's not about 
astronomy. It's really all about like what, why are there zombies in a song of ice and fire, oh, essentially. Okay. So cool. Yeah, it's a fun one to get get your feet wet with. Just right. It's it's an easy entry level thing. As for history of Westeros, what we have coming up is I, I mentioned at the beginning that we have been working with some co-writers to facilitate more episodes more often. And with that in mind, what we expect to be next is the Crypts of Winterfell. Um, nice. That may not come before. We may do another live stream before that. But as far as our next scripted content, that will be next. And we're probably going to do Blood Raven after that. And that people have been waiting on Blood Raven for a long time. We're excited to, to get back to him. And uh, I'm ready to... I've got a lot to say about Blood Raven, of course. We haven't yet decided whether it's going to be one or two episodes. We may, we may do the Blood Raven during... Blackfire Rebellions only, and then split off his other life, basically, because he's so old. He's 125 years old. He's got twice the lifespan of most people, and he's still got more to go. So that may, that may, I could easily see how that would take more than one episode. So we'll see how that works out. And we're also working on more recently begun, one from one of our co-writers, is a Manderly episode. We're also going to yes. be, we also have just getting started with our Nymeria episode. We're going to be, that's going to be in the future we don't have a, a date for that yet, but that's going to be started. We're getting some basic stuff done on that. And last but not least, I'm doing another Aziz versus chapter on the North Remembers chapter, which is, uh, that was from patron voters for that one. And uh, a while back. Nice. So lots of good stuff coming. I can't wait to share it with y'all. But for now, I will lead you with some thanks. I don't get to introduce myself and say goodbye and tell people <laughs> where to find me. <laughs> Are you kidding me right now? I am furious. So my name is, the my name is Ashea. I co-host History of Westeros <laughs> podcast and YouTube. You can find me at Fandom Media. You can find me on Twitter. Yes, thank you. At Miranis Not. Not the sex position, but the book term. That's not sex position. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> And you can uh, see a video with just me coming out. Uh, I guess I already have one out already. I did a live stream for Crusader Kings 2 where I did a Sons of the Dragon scenario, which was fun, like I mentioned. That was cool. Just me in the video. <laughs> and I have a video of my Nymeria of the Roinar uh, spinoff pitch, which I have been producing and editing. And Michael Klarfeld, who did our maps back here, is animating it with like some kinetic typography and some like little drawings. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, dude, yeah. Ashea, Ashea, that's my favorite yeah. idea that I've ever, one of my favorite ideas I've ever heard from anyone. It's really like, good. I, I mention it all the time to people. I'm like, dude, they need to do the Roinar <laughs> spinoff. Here's how it goes. I'm so glad you guys are making a pitch for that. Yeah, I'm very glad. Not us guys, me, me alone. No, I have I'm nothing joking. to do with it. He has nothing to do with it. No, he, <laughs> I get he, no credit. Michael. He, he did help that's me. Oh, yeah, I me helped and Michael. Michael. Yeah, oh, me yeah. and Michael. Yes, yeah, so I, I was really glad that he's helping me with this. So yeah, he's working on that right now on the animation. And it'll take him a while. Cool. And then we'll release it and hopefully it'll get spread about. And then we'll be well set up to do our actual Nymeria episode. So that'll be <laughs> yeah, exciting. Nice. So anyways, Aziz, now that you we haven't skipped me. I was gonna <laughs> say thanks when I was gonna say thanks too. You were gonna be one. I was hoping that you wouldn't say anything to me. I wanted to make the joke. <laughs> so I don't have to thank Ashea because she's already been thanked. But... No, no, you didn't thank me. Thank me now. <laughs> no, too late. Now, thanks to Ashea. Uh, not just for all that, but for the production work as well. <laughs> Even and... when I screw up and keep us muted. <laughs> we're, we're all... Yeah, it's not as bad as my uh, uh, aggressive, loud, microphone-busting laughter. <laughs> speaker and ear. Destroyer of speakers and ears. 
so, but let's also give thanks to Michael Clarfeld, whose maps are behind us and looking wonderful. His intro video us look is great. And his our intro, intro and video. outro. And yeah. as you were just saying, he's helping with some other things. Michael Clarfeld has done work with with uh, LML as well. Yeah, he did a video with a little animations for him. The man is a big yeah. part of this family. And he's, he's making an Iron Islands map right now. It's awesome. Oh, God, it's going to be so good. A lot of us he's have really done, great. A lot of us have done modeling for his uh, the artwork for that. Uh, yeah. Portraying famous Aziz is the first man. Yeah, he was the first man discovering the We got Sean involved in that. Yeah. yeah, and I'm in there. I'm I'm Erron Redding. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Cool. You're in there, too. I yeah, that. I'm a that's lady cool. piper. Thanks to, um, I see some of our friends here in the chat, by uh, Joe Magician and Chloe, Drunk A Song of Ice and History, Courtney and Sweet YFT and Bernie the Burnt and all y'all. Appreciate y'all coming. Also thanks to our patrons who make all this possible with their stalwart support. Want to give shout outs to them. Starting with the mysterious BR, Hand of the King. Lord Michael Valarian, Knight of High Tide and Guardian of the DeLorean. That's Shea's Hand of the Queen. Lord Jim the Fortuitous and Wars of, uh, of Wars of Politics of Ice and Fire blog. That is also uh, Jeff's compatriot there, and he is our Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and Narrow Sea. Commander of the Royal Fleet consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. They have been warring with Charlotte Oster, Corsair Queen of the Western Shivering Sea, commander of the Briny Fleet, whose flagship is the barnacle-encrusted Violet Hold Mercenaria. She carries the Nacre-inlaid Shucking Blade Crasslover, which is a really difficult sentence to say, but also really fun. Also thanks to Sir Valentin of House de Gen, creator of the Game of Predictions Future Market. Our small council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whispers. Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. Our uh, King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Um, our King's Guard is uh, led by. Oh, wait, we don't have a Lord Commander of the King's Guard right now. How cool is that? Open. We have an opening. Um, Ashe is Queen's High Council. On the other hand, is led by has Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles and Mistress of Ships, Lady Mai, Emerald Eyes, Voice of House Swan, Mistress of Whispers, taking after Tiana there, Ilya <laughs> of Upstate, Master of Coin, Grand Maester Elizabeth, middle daughter of Liana Mormont, first lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link, and Old Betha of House Copperhook. Still waters run deep, my master of loves. Right on. And your Queen's Guard is led by... Lord Captain Commander Hema Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel. Lady Nymeria of House Seapertle. Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Doom. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Jane Grey. Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. I should sing that one, maybe. I guess I'm not the songbird. <laughs> Sir Eric Redbeard Odinson, wielder of Tempest, a monstrous warhammer. Right on. Also, thanks to our lords and ladies in their castles. Lady Direlids of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, kicking it off. Next up, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Red Bell, breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lord Michael, uh, Lord Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. 
The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian of the hidden hundred acre werewood, dual wielding glorious morning and little white light, little light wise. Talk about a hard thing to say. His Vorpal Snuggle Bunny was damaged and split into these two new blades. How about that? Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, motto Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood, motto Listen for the Silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn and Lord of Blue Spring. And last but not least, we have our History of Westeros Night's Watch, which is led by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. And she is of the Night Fort. We also have First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom, and First Steward Sir Drurian of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks again to our guests. And we will see you... I want to mention real quick oh. that... Um, that uh, Jerry, the Targaryen Simba, and Don Willie wanted you to mention the stream on Saturday. Oh, of course! I meant to say that. I and you meant, I, I'm sure you did mean to, exactly. So I, yeah, I definitely this. did, and I forgot. Okay, so yes, I will be on at 4 p.m. on Saturday. I will be participating in a live stream with Don Willie and Jerry, the Targaryen Steamboat. We're going to be discussing a very cool Jamie chapter, and that is going to be at 4, so we'll, I'll be sharing the link around on social media, so keep an eye out for that. So I'll be back in just a couple of days with more content with these guys. They're inviting me on their channel, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll be sharing that out on Twitter and in other places. If you can't find it, just set, shoot us an email, historywestros, or rather, westroshistory at gmail.com, and we'll make sure that you know where to look. Okay, so again, thanks everybody for showing up. Thanks everybody for liking and sharing this video and or podcast. And we'll see you next time. Valar, reread us, everybody. Thanks again. <laughs>